That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I don't think the Brittany Griner story is foreign to anybody who's been paying attention to sports in the last uh, year or so. But uh, it, it took a turn over the weekend as officers were dispatched at about 9.38 a.m. in the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Uh, you know, you got kind of a walk in that airport if you're going anywhere. But a YouTube personality named Alex Stein tried to get an interview or at least instigate an interview with Brittany Griner. A uh, security personnel for the WNBA team tried to run interference there. I watched the video. I don't know if you watched the video. Um, it was an obvious attempt by a YouTube personality to get notoriety, right? But at the same time, Brittany Griner hasn't and answered questions that some people want to want to know. And I'm kind of wondering. From your standpoint, if you think it was fair for the media representative who was in the airport to try to get an interview or at least pepper Brittany Griner with some questions, it has raised some concerns about charter travel. I mean, ironically, the WNBA has been in this uh, battle, like the players in the WNBA trying to get equal travel with uh, NBA teams. And I uh, am kind of curious if this incident will result in the WNBA getting some empathy or uh, getting, a, I guess, an opportunity to try to get that that uh, that uh, chartered travel. But I am left kind of looking at the incident as uh, in a vacuum and asking myself, like, you know, I do think Brittany Griner probably has some questions that she needs to answer. I do not think the YouTube personality is the person that I would prefer to be asking those questions. I am left, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the tentacles of this thing more so than anything. If you are a WNBA fan, you're probably holding this up as an example of the league needing to get with the times and, hey, why should these players, particularly Brittany Griner, uh, be having to be walked through an airport? Why shouldn't they be on a chartered flight? But I also kind of look at it from the standpoint of, like, you know, this was a, air quotes here, media member who was – walking through the airport and trying to get, uh, you know, answers to questions or maybe just instigate a reaction out of Brittany Griner. I want to know what you make of it. I want to know uh, if you think that uh, this is something that uh, the league needs to address. I want you to tell me if uh, you think this is just a, a case of an attention-getting media member, air quotes there on the media member, trying to get followers for his YouTube channel. I want you to tell me whether or not you think uh, the WNBA needs to invest in charter travel. The players have complained 
that it's not the same travel that NBA players get. And, uh, and you know, some of the proponents for chartered travel have pointed out that it doesn't cost that much more when you're moving a team uh, as frequently as you are moving a team in the WNBA versus uh, commercial flights. But others yet will say, hey, you know, the NBA is a industry that pays for itself when it comes to uh, travel. It, it, it makes sense to us that the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets should get chartered travel. But what about WNBA teams that don't quite make the money that the NBA teams get? Should they also be allowed to have charter travel? And are these incidents linked in your mind? Or is there a separation between them? Can we reasonably have a conversation about the WNBA's travel while also talking about an incident that seems like it's a bit of an outlier? 503-417-7575 is a phone number. Um, the, uh, the guy who owns the YouTube channel posted the video. I watched it. It's basically him walking through the airport trying to pepper Brittany Griner with questions. If you haven't seen the video, he's asking her, how does it feel to be traded for the merchant of death? Uh, you know, asking her, you know, to answer questions. The security personnel is trying to intervene. It was a big, long, drawn-out, orchestrated event that, in the end, felt to me like an attention grab by the YouTube channel guy. And then maybe, you know, equally exploitive is the uh, the, the proponents of, you know, fair travel in the WNBA going, look, see, this is why they need travel in the WNBA, just like the NBA teams. They should not be subject to uh, YouTube personalities who are running through the airport trying to make their life difficult. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. hope you had a good weekend. The Oregon Ducks baseball team had a great weekend and then not so great weekend. Joining us coming up uh, in the next segment of radio to talk about Oregon's trip in the postseason. Uh, Super regional, they came from behind in record fashion to beat Oral Roberts. Biggest comeback victory in Super Regional College Baseball history in uh, winning the Super Regional uh, Game 1 after trailing 8 nothing, came back to win it 9-8, walked them off. It felt like Oregon was a team of destiny at that point. The Ducks subsequently came back in Game 2 and surrendered a lead in the ninth inning, blew a lead, and ended up losing Game 2, and then just didn't have the pitching and defense in Game 3 of their series. Still... I'm left wondering, you know, if Oregon can look at what happened in this postseason and hold it up as, hey, this is progress, knocking on the door, this is a necessary step. I always say it on on the show, I think you have to sniff around success before you break through. I think good teams, good franchises, they sniff around it before they break through. What you don't want to see is a big step backwards. And what happened in the Super Regional to Oregon can can, uh, manifest itself in two ways. Way number one... Uh, let's take a, a lesson from the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl, who blew a 28-3 to lead in the Super Bowl on the big stage and didn't get back there, just sort of fell off Matt Ryan, not even with his team anymore. Uh, conversely, you have other examples. Let's use Oregon State football as an example of sniffing around it, losing a lot of close games two years ago, losing games on fourth and one, losing games in the goal line situation was kind of a – disappointing year even though it was a year of progress for Oregon State they were very close in a lot of losses and then last season that flipped they won a lot of close games is this a case where Oregon 
is close. Like, are they a year away with this young team and some of the young players they have? Are they a year away from getting to Omaha? We'll talk to Mark Wasikowski about it. Steven, you're in studio. Hey, how was your weekend, man? What'd you do? Uh, it was good. Uh, just kind of hung out a little bit. You know, the Coach Vaughn, she's finally done coaching uh, the track team upstate. State meet was a week ago or so, so uh, kind of just getting back to normal life, you know, catching up on laundry, doing those type of things. So uh, oldest son was a little sick uh, this past week, so we kind of got him all uh, all ready to go for his last week of school. So not nothing too big, uh, just kind of hanging out and uh, relaxing, getting better. Yeah, you got to get into what you say is normal. Really, is kind of feels abnormal, doesn't it? Like when you like we had a weekend, you know, we were going through volleyball and then soccer and track and field happening at the same time as a family and i think a lot of families out there with kids go through this and then all of a sudden we had a weekend where there was nothing i didn't quite know what to do yeah no you know i I agree because uh the week before you know the oldest son had his last soccer tournament so we didn't have any games to go to they had like end of the year uh soccer team party that we went to but you know that was about it like no no games no nothing to go to it was a little weird a little awkward give me an idea um you know look i I think that when we look at the Brittany Griner situation, you've got a YouTube personality, provocateur, whatever you want to call him. WNBA is sort of lacing this conversation by saying this guy was aggressive, which he was. He was a little unnecessary. He made a couple of comments that I think were just really ridiculous. But, you know, I also think like when you are an NBA player, NFL player, WNBA player, um, you get heckled at different times. Now, you don't want to be heckled when you're in the airport. You don't want it to be classless, and I think it did cross the line. But I'm left thinking, like, there's a Brittany Griner conversation to have, and then there's a whole separate conversation to have about travel in the WNBA. And I don't like that these two things are getting muddled. Steven, how did you see the Griner airport fiasco yeah it's i think it's two different conversations that you're having and i agree with you in that point because the youtuber i mean that guy's a clown like the way he went about it and the it was all about clout all about trying to get his name out there and get more clicks more subscribers on his youtube channel that's all it was and you know he he's going for his audience that he wants to go for and he did a great job of it like if that's that's the audience he wants to have he did a great job to Try to embarrass Brittany Griner, basically, is what he was trying to do. Trying to embarrass her, trying to make her feel bad. Now, if you want to talk about the travel stuff, that's a different conversation than what you know the actual YouTuber did. And I, I think it's fair to have those conversations. Um, but I also think that when you are in the limelight and you're in the spotlight, it's a little different. Like, if you're a professional athlete, you're going to get people that are going to try to harass you no matter what. This guy was over the top, and it was embarrassing for that guy, I think. Like, I think it's just so – it's such a clown move by that guy, but – at the same time, you're going to get these type of people. So I, I, I feel like it's – is it a one-off? Maybe not. Maybe it is. But I think it does open up the whole conversation of, you know, does the WNBA deserve to have, you know, chartered flights and deserve to have a little bit of security around them so they don't have to deal with these type of things just in the regular airport? Let's let's start with that because the, there's a big difference between the revenue generated in the NBA and the WNBA. And in most cases, most WNBA franchises are subsidized by their NBA counterparts. Um, There's been a lot of movement in the world of soccer towards equal pay and equal travel. And I feel like the conversation is kind of flowing into this WNBA conversation. And and I had a couple of, you know, quick thoughts on that. Like, A, I don't think if the revenue doesn't justify 
uh, chartered flights. I don't think that the NBA should be just subsidizing it for the sake of subsidizing it. But I do think, like, we are talking about a professional sport. We are talking about college teams that largely charter. And I do think that it kind of looks Mickey Mouse when you have your WNBA team walking through the DFW airport and acting like, you know, they're an NIA or a Division Two or Division Three team that's kind of sitting in the terminal. And you look and you go, hey, this is, you know, you're trying to take it seriously. So I think from a perception standpoint, there the NBA makes investments in things for far less reason and far less logic than it looking good. And the, the, you know? I do. And the reason why Brittany Griner is playing basketball in Russia is because she wasn't getting enough money over here in America, right? Like that you know, it so it goes back to the whole pay thing. And I agree with you. It it at this at one point it's like, you know, are they making enough revenue to justify it? And I think that is a valid argument. I think just to say blanketly like they deserve charter flights because the NBA does. Well, no, they don't make as much money, so it's an actual conversation to have. But at the same time, I do feel like since the NBA has already put up so much money to back this product, they're really trying to you know to push this product, as like you said, to be you know a viable candidate and a, a real sport, right? Like it, it already is a real sport, but like have more people pay attention to it. I do think that that would be the next step, right? It does look bad when you have your professional athletes, the best you know, women basketball players in the in in the world. Yeah. And they're just traveling around in the airport just like everybody else. I feel like it's got to be you got to uh you know, help them out just a little bit in that situation if you're really trying to make this a legitimate sport. And I think that the NBA has and I think the WNBA has done a great job as well as marketing to their uh, you know, player marketing their players and things like that. And it's becoming a little bit better where some of the high, you know, the higher name, uh, bigger name players don't have to play overseas. You look at Sabrina, she doesn't have to play overseas because she's making enough money with endorsements and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's getting there. But at the same time, this is just kind of a step back and saying, well, the NBA doesn't necessarily take it that seriously. Here's the thing, too. Like, you know, look, if I if I am an athlete, a professional athlete, of course, I want the best nutrition. Of course, I want the best facilities. I want the best uh, team around me. I also want charter travel versus uh, versus commercial airline travel, and you know, so I don't have to go through security, arriving at the airport early, sitting in the terminal, you know, potentially connecting on a flight. Uh, and one of the things that's really interesting about the WNBA is that there is a really complex mix of owners who were initial owners who launched WNBA teams because, hey, we just wanted to have uh, a WNBA arm and their holdover kind of old school hardliners. And then there's there's this new NBA ownership that is really aggressive, new owners that want to kind of pour money into the future of the WNBA. And they're, uh, they're pitted against on this issue, the old school owners who were like going, hey, we remember when this league started. And it was never supposed to be like the NBA. The money's not there. The TV deal's not there. And the New York Liberty, people may remember this story. It kind of flew under the radar uh, to steal a euphemism. But in 2021, in the WNBA season, Sabrina Ionescu and some of her teammates were traveling charter with the New York Liberty. And the New York Liberty was violating the collective bargaining agreement by having uh, like the team take certain trips that via charter when other teams did not. Now, um, you, it was a violation of the collective bargaining agreement for the league. And so and it put pressure on a lot of other owners. The New York Liberty got fined $500,000 for traveling via charter. 
it was a big story in that world, in that uh, in that uh, league. But you know, it was just really interesting to see kind of like there's this there's this separation of old school owners who remember WNBA teams that were founded by NBA teams, and then there's the new owners who are going, no, 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 I, I view this as a standalone entity. I want to put my money into it. I'm here to win. Now, I think it's a really interesting tug of war, and it really doesn't have to do that much with, hey, uh, what is the cost of the travel? Should they be treated like you know professionals? Like we've watched the salaries in the, in the, uh, in the WNBA. Like you know, the maximum salary in 2020 was $119,000, and then – it, it you know it bumped up to two hundred fifteen thousand dollars and salary caps went up thirty percent in three years, and so the you, know, you know people ask the WNBA how are you going to pay for that like you're doubling the maximum salary, you're talking about charter travel, how are you going to do it? And Kathy Engelbert who's come to Portland a couple times to talk about a WNBA team to Portland, so don't think this isn't going to affect Portland potentially. She comes out and says, hey, you know what? They're gonna, we're going to transform the league. She said this in 2021. We're going to transform the league. We're going to drive in new fans. We're going to drive in ticket sales. We're going to drive up viewership. We're going to drive up the value of the franchises. And we're going to sell this league to the public. Now, I'm going to ask you, Stephen, you're a basketball person. Have you felt in the last two years that the WNBA has stayed the same in popularity, grown in popularity, or regressed? Um... That's t- I would say it's slightly slightly more popular. I would say slightly because I feel like I see it more on my timeline. I feel like more, you know, players, you know, NBA players or celebrities are saying, "Hey, you know, I'm watching the WNBA game and it's really good," but we're not we're still not talking about it and we still don't hear a lot of conversation about it. It's kind of just like these little blips on the radar of, "Oh, this is on." So, you know, I'm watching it. It's not like we're really breaking down anything or anybody's doing that. It's more just I'm watching this or I was at the WNBA game or it was it was a you know if someone does go to a game it's oh it was a really good experience it was a lot of fun but it's never like we never you know kind of like we break down the Pac-12 schedule we take we break down the games we're not doing that with the WNBA and I don't see a lot of people doing that so I would say I see it a little more but I don't know how much more popular it actually is yeah I think you've got owners like um you know the Psy family who bought the Liberty in New York you've got the Minnesota franchise You've got Atlanta, and you've got Mark Davis in Las Vegas, who are all kind of these new owners who are going, we want to invest in our product. We want to pay for charter flights. We want to uh, have payrolls that go beyond the salary cap. And then the rest of the league's owners are going, nah, this is still the WNBA. Like, we're not making a whole bunch of money here. And so I think it's a really interesting standoff that you have between the new owners and the old owners. And the Liberty have even come out and said, look, we found a way to get chartered flights comped for everyone in the league. And the older, the old guard owners didn't even want to have the conversation. They were like, no, 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 we're good with commercial flights because they know if they open the door to that, what happens after the comp flights go away? You know, you start having to pay for the chartered flights. And so they were like, that's not a door that we want to open. I, I think the league has stayed about the same in popularity except in those cities that I mentioned. Because the cities that appear willing to invest in the franchises, like the Liberty have, like you know Mark Davis in, in Vegas has done, they, they to me feel like, like the aces of Las Vegas feel like, I hear more about them, I hear more about Sabrina Ionescu maybe because of where we are, but 
it is this chartered flight thing is mostly about validation and I kind of wondered if the YouTube provocateur did the WNBA players a favor because everybody's glommed on to the idea that, hey, if you have chartered flights, you're going to avoid interactions like this. I don't think interactions like this are the norm. And I actually think it, this, that this YouTube guy would have found another way if it was a chartered flight. He would have been at the arena. He would have been in a news conference. He would have been out the team hotel. He, you know, he would have found a way to be a distraction. He was chasing followers and chasing attention. But I think in the end, like, the, you know, the whole conversation got muddied a little bit for me. Mark Wazikowski's coming up, University of Oregon baseball coach. It was a great weekend to start, and then a rough weekend as uh, Oregon, just in the final nine or ten innings of its season, just didn't pitch it, didn't, didn't play defense, and did not pitch. We'll talk to Wazikowski about his team, what is next, for the program and whether or not they can use what happened over the weekend as a stepping stone to get to Omaha a year from now. Waz will join us coming up. I want you to leave it here. Great season for the Oregon Ducks. It ended in the Super Regional in Eugene. We got Mark Wazikowski, Oregon Ducks baseball coach, on the show. Mark Wazikowski's there joining us now. Hey, great. first of all, great season. I know that you, it probably didn't end where you'd hope it, had, it, it might, Coach, but that was a wild ride this weekend, and you took a lot of fans in this entire state on it. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I, I was I was thrilled that you reached out, and I'm just honored that you thought of us today. And and yeah, it was it was unbelievable to see what happened in our community. And this whole thing is it's a, it's about the community and the people, and our community and our uh, and our state and our city and the rest of the school and the rest of it. I mean, they just they really came out in huge numbers, and that was a credit to. Rob Mullins' vision, to be honest with you, when he came to that first production meeting that I sat in, I said, you know what we need to do is we need to make uh, more seats out there. Let's somehow get more seats out there, and then let's do this thing like a football tailgating, a fan fest, and there were 3,000 people outside the stadium while the stadium was at capacity. So, you know, Rob's vision on that was awesome too. Could you afford to look around maybe, you know, between innings or maybe – you know, as you guys are coming back from an 8-0 deficit and the place is starting to rock on Friday, could you afford to look around, or do you have to be so locked into what's happening on the field that you don't really think about the atmosphere until after? Yeah, I'm just a regular guy at the end of the day. I mean, sure, I look around. That was fun. <laughs> I mean, geez, if I wasn't down there in the dugout, you know, having to make decisions and stuff like that, I'd probably be up there having a beer and a hot dog and just enjoying the scenery. That was That was an awesome venue, you know, and um, and I know how awesome it was because, geez, even our rivals were, were sending all kinds of crazy messages to me about how it was great that we lost and this, that, and the other. And all that tells me is great. That sounds like we got a rivalry. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you can't have a rivalry if, if uh, only one team's good. So it's nice to have uh, a second good team in the state to where, you know, people are excited. And, and even when the haters show up, boy, that's awesome. That's, that's a lot of fun. That's why I took yeah. this job. I got to tell you what to do with the haters. Don't pull them on stage with you. You know, you you ignore them. You take it. And you say, okay, that's good. It's good for baseball. But uh, I get it from both sides, coach. It's their fans. I love it. I think it's great. It's healthy. It's healthy for our state. Uh, it's healthy for our game. And you know what? I want Oregon State to be good. I want Oregon to be good. I, I want to have great environments. I mean, if, if if the teams aren't any good, there's nothing to do around here. I mean, I, I mean, floating down a river and fishing, I like it all. But I mean, geez, let's let's have some fun and with baseball and all the other sports. The the better the sports are at two schools, the better this whole thing is. 
Let me go back to maybe midseason and even before the Pac-12 tournament. You know, you and I had a conversation, and I told you, you know, I thought, you know, you guys were were going to uh, finish the conference season well. I had no idea you'd get to a super regional, but if I had told you then you're going to get to the super regional, and guess what, you're going to host, and you're going to have the biggest the biggest comeback in super regional history on Friday night, and you know, you probably would take that. Oh, absolutely. I would take that. I'd take it in a heartbeat. So proud of these kids. They laid it out there on the line. You know, they, um, you know, we, no club has a perfect club at the end of the year. And, you know, we, we fall in that as well. Um, but even, even on the game two of the, the super regional, you know, we're up one, nothing, uh, you know, in, in games. And then in the ninth inning, we got a one run lead in the ninth with nobody on and one out and our go-to closer guy in the game. I mean, my gosh, it's fantastic. We weren't able to get it done. And, and that disappoints me. Um, I see the progress. I see the growth. We ask our players just to get better every single day. I know this program's getting better. Um, I'm, I'm excited for our state to where they can have something else to do and, and really have, uh, you know, uh, other things to, to follow and get excited about. And, and that's, to be honest with you, that's our, our effort. It's just let's just keep making this thing better and better. And, and if it's our time, then it's our time. When it is our time, uh, it's going to be a special, special time. Mark Wazikowski with us, University of Oregon baseball coach. Great season. Got to the Super Regional. Uh, held a 1-0 lead. Um, you know, was it, is it in the last nine or ten innings of, of play of this season, is it just as simple as the pitching wore out, the defense wasn't there? You know, can you, can you kind of put a finger on it? What will you think about as the offseason starts? Well, I think we had a, a margin for error that was pretty dang thin with, with the fact that, you know, we were rolling out a bunch of freshmen. We had some injuries and stuff like that. But but really the thing that, that probably a lot of people didn't even know was, you know, our 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 best starter down the stretch, Turner Spolgeric. You know, this is a kid who's got such strong competitive makeup, probably from his dad, Paul, who pitched in big leagues. He's, he was a good one. And, um, you know, this kid, he he didn't even practice with us all week. He's He's one of our – He's our best starter down the stretch, and he didn't even practice last week. And even two days before his start, he's in, um, I don't know, if it was the hospital, the ER, or whatever it was, and he's got an IV in him. And he, he gets out of there, and he's telling me, you know, he lost 20, something like 21 pounds, and he's telling me, hey, coach, you know, I'm pitching. You know, I'm pitching on, on my start. I'm not missing it, and I'm going to give you everything I got. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, this is what these kids are doing. I mean, you know, and, and it's just special. They wanted it. They wanted it badly. And that's probably the biggest negative takeaway I have is that it, I just, I hurt for those kids because they, they really, the Turner, you know, just, man, Turner, Tanner Smith, Gavin Grant, these guys are just such competitors. I wanted it more for them than anything else, them in the community. Mark, uh, you know, you obviously want your guys to get better. They did last year to this year. You, you had a bunch of guys who came in, uh, you know, worked hard in the gym, worked hard in the off season. What message do you give them after game three yesterday? Told them I loved them, you know, told them hurting with them. Um, told them that this is a, a deal, this is a program where we want to just continue to, like we asked them, like I just said, we just want everybody to continue to get better. Um, compare, uh, just, just care about the guy next to you, you know, and, and everybody's going to respond differently and, and whatever. I, I, I just know this much. I mean, you know, we, we came in and I think I've been here four years now. I know one of those years didn't count because we were going through the pandemic. That was terrible. Um, but you know, to be able to, when they first brought me in, they were, they were saying, Hey, do you think that you can get this thing? We, we think we should be in postseason play. Well, we've done that now. We've, 
we've done that. The COVID year was one year, uh, and then we've been in the regionals, the regionals, now the super regionals. We went back 12 conference uh, tournament championship this year. I mean, things are clearly going in the right direction. We're excited about it. Um, you know, a lot of this thing has to do with relationships and then recruiting. And, boy, are me and my staff excited to get back out on the road and recruit and continue to bring in quality people and great players and just keep building this program. You know, it does – Things just don't happen overnight, and um, if they do, then it's probably not real, um, and we're just going to keep keep going to work every single day to where people can um, – we can earn their respect, and I think that's what we did this year is we earned the people's respect because they, they probably knew that we weren't a perfect commodity, and they still just appreciated the the uh, the blue-collar work ethic that we threw out there, and, and that's how we played, and that's how we – I don't know, that's just how we are off the field. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, you hit it. I mean, I think it's great that Oregon State has raised some profile, won some championships. They've set the bar high for themselves and everybody else. But it was fun to see your run, too. And, I, you know, I, I keep talking about college football. I'd love to see Oregon versus Oregon State in Vegas for the Pac-12 championship. That could happen, right? And both of those programs are, are playing well now. And I think that it's not unthinkable that you get to Omaha, Oregon State gets to Omaha, and it turns into like an Oregon – themed festival there is you know and the Pac-12 would be happy about that but you know you now do you think your guys know because I always say stuff like you got to sniff around it a little bit before you break through is there truth in that like did you sniff around it this year well I I don't know I I sure hope there's truth to that because I want to get there you know and and the guys up the road have gotten there um and you know credit coach Casey I, I really do respect that man he I remember when I was coaching in the University of Arizona and he didn't have it going yet and I remember when the quick coupler behind the pitcher's mound blew up before our Friday night game. And, you know, they're out there trying to stop the water leak in, in the middle of, of their field. And that's where the program was at at that point. And yet that man created a great program and, and they were able to have success that they had. I, I respect that. And, and um, you know, for me, I just think that the better that the two sports are, or the not two sports, I'm sorry, the two colleges and all the sports are with both schools, the better off we are, the better it is for our state. I mean, and it's about that, that pure and simple. It doesn't mean that I need to love those guys up the road. As a matter of fact, I don't particularly like them, and that's okay. I don't think they like me either, and that's, that's, that's fine. We respect each other. I think they do a nice job. And for me, I just uh, I think it's great for people in our state to understand that, that respect is one thing, and, uh, and having great products is, is something that if we can have great products in both schools and all the sports, boy, that just makes our state so much better. Yeah, it's a good point. Like, I look at Jonathan Smith, I look at Dan Lanning, you know, I think they respect each other. I don't think they have to like each other uh, on game day. And I don't, you know, I think they, you know, want to, want to beat each other. And I think that that's good for the state, good for the sport. Mark Wazikowski with us, Oregon baseball coach. Um, all right, uh, recruiting. It, it's the name of the game. How how quickly or can you start to, you, I know during this part, part of the year, how, how much are you thinking about recruiting already? How much are you able to say, hey, look, we're close we're right there, super regional, hosted. Can you use that? Can you sell that? Sure, I think you can sell that. Um, I think the people know, though, the with with just the the way information flow is these days. These kids are smart. They they see what's out there. You know, our it, it's amazing. After you win, you get three hundred text messages. After you lose, you get four. You know, I mean, so people know. They see. They want to see a winner. They want to see the people in Omaha. They want to. They want to see progress. They want to see good. And um, when you can present good to a recruit, recruits family, and then get just it, it gets you in the door. And after you get into the door, then it's then you 
then you need to be able to see if you can connect with people to where you can actually get them on campus. Um, and so, yes, I do. I think that we can use this, use this uh, to our advantage in a big way. And I think maybe even uh, equally as important as this season was just showing the constant, um, you know, we're in postseason play, in postseason play, in postseason play, and the elevation of what the program is going through right now is probably the biggest selling point. You've got, you know, obviously an amateur draft in baseball, but uh, we're in a landscape where kids, if they want to come back, uh, can get better. Is there a player that showed you this year that, you know, maybe uh, maybe it's more than one guy, but that you feel is part of ne- the future next season you're real excited to see come back, or how much better can this player be? I'd take them all back. I mean, I, I love these kids. I mean, I, I and it's hard to predict who's going to be the guy that, you know, was a good player one year and turns into a great player the next year. That's really hard mm-hmm. to predict because you're, you're talking about young people that are in their 20s or whatever. And, you know, these guys, there's so much in front of them to tell a kid that, you know, you've reached your potential or you can't do something is really short-sighted in my opinion. I just, mm-hmm. I feel like, boy, you just never know when. When are these kids going to, break through a ceiling um, that is just remarkable. I mean, you know, let, let me use the kid up the road, you know, Adley Rutschman. I mean, you know, he was a good player. He's a really good player all the way through. And yet look at the things he's doing, just stupendous, you know, and, and that's development. And, and he did, they did a tremendous job of that young man and he just developed um, and, and has turned into a great player that he is. And we've had so many stories on our end of the, of the same, you know, Spencer Steer and Johnny DeLuca in the major leagues, among so many others. You just never know when these kids are going to just kill it and really reach a place in their maturity where they can excel and excel maybe sometimes beyond what the scouts and others thought they would. And so I don't know who it would be, whether it's, you know, Ceballos looks like he's probably on his way out because of what he did this year. Same thing with uh, with maybe Colby Shade or Nishida or people like that. But, I mean, if, if any of them are in that bubble range or whatever, boy, I would love to have the opportunity to keep, to, uh, keep working with these guys. Can I ask you in baseball, because we see it in basketball and in college football where the NIL collectives, you know, get involved and they become very important with retention. But I wonder with the amateur draft, Major League Baseball draft, and, you know, the NIL world, is, is that a major factor in baseball or is it more about the draft and the opportunities and maybe the kid having sort of the – awareness of what another year can do for them? Well, that's a good question. I think we're just starting to get to to the beginning of that, John. Um, you know, the NIL stuff, um, I know we lost about four or five of the best portal guys that I'm seeing uh, pitch and play for teams out there that, boy, we thought we had great relationships with. And at the end of the day, last, um, uh, last year in the summer, we ended up not getting those kids. And I, I don't know the details of the nail deals that they got and all that kind of stuff, but I got to believe that that was a factor. Um, and so I think we're just starting down this road where I think maybe college football and, and college basketball mm-hmm. a couple of years maybe out in front of us. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised for us to just follow along suit with what's going on in those games. I don't know why we would think it would be any different. Yeah, it kind of feels that way. And I think in, in football you see quarterbacks obviously leading the way and maybe defensive tackles. Uh, a cover corner becomes very valuable. And I kind of wonder in baseball if we'll see pitchers start to get some of those deals. But also, you get highly drafted pitchers. There's a, you know there's some good money out there you know in that draft as well. So I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see where the tug of war is in your sport. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I, I, you know, you saw several guys, several of the big fish went off the board last year and, and the, the marquee guy being Paul Skeens right now that's at LSU coming out of the Air Force Academy. And, and so many of us were, were trying like crazy uh, to get Paul to, to come to, to our schools. And, and yet LSU got him. I don't know the details of all that. I know uh, Jay very well. He's a good friend of mine, their head coach, Jay Johnson. And, and he did a good job getting him. And, and obviously they're reaping the benefits of it. I, I definitely think that that's going to be a big player in our game. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know how big of a player in the game, but I, I think it probably comes down to, you know, uh, the desire of the, those fan bases and the how deep do the pockets want to run because I think that's what I'm seeing. I'm not sure, but I think that's what I'm seeing in football and basketball. Mark Wazikowski, thank you. Great season. Celebrate it. I know it didn't end how you wanted it, but uh, that atmosphere at PK Park, you, you know, you guys did that. You created that. It would have been an empty stadium without the way that you finished the year. Appreciate it, John. And you know what? The, these kids, I love them. I, they created it. We just, you know, the coaching staff were here for them. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to have a chance to, to work with these guys. This 2023 team is a really special team. And and uh, we just look to continue to build that. And I thank all the fans and, and all those students that came out. I mean, that place was unbelievable. Never seen anything like it at PK Park. And I'm sure that's just the beginning. There he is, Mark Wasikowski. Oregon had a great season this close to getting to Omaha, can they break through next season? I'll be really curious to see how they bounce back, uh, who comes back, and who they add to the mix. But certainly I think at Oregon and Oregon State, the state of Oregon has got a hotbed of baseball. You throw University of Portland in there, it, not too shabby. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Our big splash is next. Rather enjoyed that interview with Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon baseball coach. Did you hear what he said? Said he respects Oregon State, respects what Pat Casey built. Doesn't like those guys, though. Uh, I'm still, I'm a little surprised that the Oregon State fans got out and uh, started trolling a little bit on social media after Oregon uh, did not advance to the College World Series. It, they, Oregon was within two outs of getting to Omaha. And to get that close and not break through, you know, I, I think we've seen some cases in sports where great teams have an opportunity and don't break through and then they fall off and they don't get back the next year. And we have some some cases where they do. And so I'm really interested to see if this Oregon team can go, hey, we're that close, time to regroup and get back at it, and here's what we need to do in the offseason. I'm also curious to see how NIL will affect a non-revenue-generating sport like baseball because the money – is generally buried in the revenue-generating sports. But we have seen cases, women's college basketball being one of them, where some high-profile programs that have a lot to gain do sort of put it together when it comes to that NIL space. I'm really interested to see how the draft plays into this as well because you have several high-profile players in the Pac-12 that will be drafted, and it will be a no-brainer decision that they sign and take the bonus money and get about being a professional. But you're going to have a group of others that get drafted, get the opportunity to get that bonus money, and sign with a team, but also could be strong candidates potentially to stay in school another year, not sign, uh, come back for another season. You also have the pursuit of high-level pitching because that's really, when you look at Oregon's season, Oregon said a – you know, a program record for home runs in the single season. 
Came back from an 8 nothing deficit on Friday to win 9-8. Biggest comeback in Super Regional history. It was a remarkable game. Uh, showed a lot of resilience. And beyond that, I kind of wonder, like, you know, is Oregon just a pitcher away? Especially based on the performance yesterday. You know, you, you do your best. You throw your best guy out there. I think both teams knew that by the time you get to Game 3 of a Super Regional, especially after coming through a conference tournament in the Pac-12, a regional tournament that, you know, you have to go on the road with, now you have a Super Regional that happens to go to a, you know, Game 3 situation, and you have the potential, even though you have a lead, you blow a lead late, it, I, I can do nothing more but look back and go, okay, in the last 9 or 10 innings, what went wrong? It wasn't hitting. Oregon didn't get the pitching, didn't play the defense. That's what it was about. And, you know, Wazikowski mentioned a tight margin. And that's what that's what happens when you have pitching that is either worn out, beat up, or just isn't there in the first place. You have a very slim margin to walk a victory through. And that I think that happened in the last 9, 10 innings. And, and, and frankly, you could go back to Friday's game, and you can say either one of these teams could have won Friday's game. Either one of these teams could have been dominant on Sunday and walked off a winner on Sunday. And either one of these teams could have won. I was walk-off, walk-off, and in the end, walk-off. All three games decided in walk-off fashion. It could have been a sweep. It could have been Oregon's turn to get to Omaha. I mean, it felt that arbitrary and that up in the air. And congrats to Oral Roberts, who got the win, advanced to Omaha. It's a lot to go on the road. It's a lot to come from behind twice in consecutive games to win that way, especially after the way they lost on Friday. Steven, you, you heard Wazikowski. What jumped out to you in that interview? Just the fact when you were talking about the stands and the fans, and he goes, well, I'm a human, so yeah, I looked at it. And I mean, that was the biggest takeaway for me was the atmosphere that the Oregon fans put on. I mean, it was it was raucous. Like, it was a really fun atmosphere to watch. Like, my wife even texted me. I was, I was here at the station working on Sunday night, and she's watching the game, and she's like, man, this Oregon crowd is unbelievable. And I'm like, yeah, they, they've, been, they've showed out. And it was really cool to see because you don't see that a lot of times in baseball and, you know, playoff baseball, um, you know, NCAA tournament baseball, like it's the margin of error, as you've been talking about, is so razor thin that sometimes the fans can put you over the top. And Oregon was that close. And, you know, when you get to this level, you got to have things break your way, just didn't break your way. But the fans, man, they really showed out, and it was really fun to watch. It, ma- it made for a really fun product on TV as well, which I thought was really cool. I don't understand the trolling, though. If Oregon State fans are trolling Oregon's baseball coach, it feels, yeah, come on. It, like, <laughs> You, you got to be better yeah. than that, Oregon State. You, you've won national titles. Like, you're above that, right? You should be. And I know these two programs had some tense moments this season. But I think there was some real disappointment with the Oregon State program and the fans with not getting out of the regional and watching their rival get out of the regional and get to the Super and host. So I think there was some initial bad feelings. And then Friday, Friday belonged to Oregon. Like, the comeback on Friday, you know, I, I was so locked into that game. I was so tuned in. And early on, when Oregon goes down 8 nothing to start the game, essentially, you know, it, it just felt like, oh, air out of the tires. But Wasikowski said it in the post game on Friday night. He's, you know, he was talking about they play, they play a uh, sort of a game within the game during practices during the week. They call it a skins game, right? It's, it's similar to golf. Like, who wins this hole? Who wins this inning? 
And he essentially just said, hey, we, we started playing the Skins game. Like, can we win the next inning? And they did, 2 nothing. Can they win the next inning? And they did. And all of a sudden, it's 9-8, and they're jumping around the bases. I thought it was really special Friday night, and it felt like this was a team of destiny. And the whiplash from that did not come immediately on Saturday. Like, for most of Saturday, it looked like Oregon was getting to Omaha. And I think... It In some weird way, I don't understand it. I don't relate to it. I'm a media member. I'm not really a fan in the way that Oregon fans are fans or Oregon State fans are fans. I like there are people involved with these programs that I like. I like Mitch Canham. I was texting with him today. I like Wazikowski. I was texting with him over the weekend. Uh, I, 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 I think both of these programs, it would be awesome to see them both have success. And there's more than one way to build a winner, too. doesn't have to be... Oregon State or Oregon, it can be both of them. And it can be both of them on a regular basis. And so I don't understand and I don't relate to the idea that Oregon State fan is trolling Oregon after a disappointing finish to the regional where Oregon Oregon like advanced 67% to Omaha and then reversed and came back. And I feel like it might have even been more than that. Like, you could say they were 95% of the way to Omaha and reversed and came back. But the only thing that I can think of is that, is it possible Oregon State fan was going, hey, we have always held baseball up as our thing. Three national championships, back-to-back with Pat Casey, this has been our thing. And was it? threatening Oregon State in some way that Oregon was knocking on the door? I think you, or, I think you, you know. hit I think that's it. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Oregon State baseball, like that is, you know, we've talked about the best programs in the state. That could be the best program in all of the state of Oregon. And I think that they really hold that to a high standard there. They do, but I just don't. I, I love when both programs got to the regional and I was like, gosh, could they both get to Omaha? Uh, leave it here. You got the BFT. We got Punch It Audio coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. Great sound next. And a lot of people on social media questioning the strategy of the Oregon coaching staff when it came to the Super Regional Game 3. You know, why do they start the pitcher they start? Why do they make the pitching changes they make, the lineup that they have? Look, I, you can nitpick in baseball probably more decisions than any other sport because I do think there's some strategy decisions in baseball that are glaring. You have to fill out a lineup card after all. Dan Lanning doesn't necessarily have to fill up a lineup card when he's putting his football team out onto the field. But the lineup's out there for everybody to see. The pitching changes, they're out there for everybody to see. Yes, going for it on fourth down from your own 29-yard line, we can all see that and we can question that. But I also kind of look at what Oregon did in getting to the point where they were knocking on the door to Omaha. It was the same strategy that got them there. They danced with the one who brung them, so to speak, strategy-wise. I just think they ran out of pitching and didn't play defense. They didn't make the plays in the field. That's what it comes down to. That close. Are they sniffing it? Can they break through in a year? And will Oregon State be there? And what about those Oregon State fans? Maybe it's just a thin stripe of fans who are uh, mocking Oregon for getting that close to Omaha. Is it because Oregon looked a little bit too much like, dare I say it, the best baseball program in the state this season. They went farther than Oregon State did. Uh, Oregon State's got the national championships. Is it okay for Oregon State to just appreciate, hey, Oregon got that close. Oregon State had a couple of years where they were that close. It's not fun to be that close, especially when you know Omaha, for the first time since 1954, 
is on the other side of that close. Uh, we're going to play Punch It Audio in this segment. Uh, I will take some phone calls at 503-417-7575. For those of you who listen carefully, coming up in the 5 at 5, you will be rewarded uh, tomorrow on the program because something that happens during the 5 at 5 today will be uh, the subject of a question on tomorrow's show in the 5 o'clock hour. And if you are paying careful attention, you'll be uniquely qualified to call in and win a pair of tickets, two pairs of tickets, to go see the Mariners this season. What I'm saying is pay attention at 5 o'clock today. It could put you at the ballpark. Mike's in Seattle, not far from the ballpark. Welcome to the program, Mike. What's up? What's on your mind? Mike in Seattle, no longer there. And there he goes. Let's get into Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Coach Prime at Colorado. Prime, uh, Prime is saying that nobody's saying that the coaching staff is bad. So why would this team be bad? He's talking to Joel Klatt. Coach Prime says they got talent, they got coaching. What's the problem? Punch it. It's very rare that you have really good talent mm -hmm. and a really good coaching staff and you don't win. Think about that. I have seen no one to disagree about the level of the coaching staff. So why would you find fault in the way we're going about acclaiming the kids? Right. But you said nothing about me assembling the coaching staff. So I'm good at that and not good at that. <laughs> that assembling the coaching staff is harder than the kids. 100%. That's what I'm talking about. 100%. Right. There's no way we're going to have this and not that. I don't know. I... I don't. I think you can have this and not that all the time. I think if you can have a coaching staff, that, for example, that is really good at recruiting players, but not so good at coaching, game managing, preparing, development, growth. That's why you have a coaching staff. You're supposed to ideally have coaches within the staff that can do different things. Now, I think Prime saying something different. He says nobody on the outside is arguing that the coaching staff is bad. So why would the kids not be good on the field, talent-wise good, and also good when they walk through the door? I, I don't think it's that simple. I think you could have a great coaching staff that is early in its tenure, that is bringing uh, players in that are promising, especially at the kill, skill positions, but also maybe struggling to get results. Results take time. I think, uh, I think Colorado's going to be a lot better, infinitely better than they were a year ago. I just don't know how much better, win and loss-wise. But do you think there is a correlation between finding talented players and finding talented coaches and being able to assemble both, or is that two separate things? And I think what Coach Prime is saying here, John, is, you know what, the coaching staff I got is elite. So if I'm bringing these kids in, they're going to be elite players and we're going to be a really good team. I, I just don't know if it's that simple, especially in football in year one. I, I think if this were a basketball program where bringing in two or three transfers can completely make over your roster, your team, 
how good you are, how dynamic you are. It can make the supporting cast look better. Changes your whole rotation. Two or three players. Two or three transfers. You can, I think you could go from worse to NCAA tournament in a season. You could with the right transfers. But I just don't think in football, I look, yeah, having great coaches, that's going to attract talent. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be like, you know, it. If, if you're getting wide receivers, defensive backs, running backs, linebackers, but you don't have defensive tackles and offensive linemen, uh, you're not going anywhere. I think that's where they're going to get in trouble this season. And I also kind of wonder if he's just recruiting when he's saying that. Hey, we got great coaches. Come see us. I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think just having great coaches or having an elite coaching staff makes your players automatically better? I do. I think the coaching staff matters a lot in college football, but I will say to become an elite team, you know, an Alabama, a Georgia, those type of teams, that's when you need the elite and the elite. You need the elite talent with elite coaches. I think you can have elite talent and less, lesser, or elite coaching, lesser talent, and still be a solid team, you know, making bowl games, seven, eight games, being competitive. You're never going to get to that high level. So I do, I, I think there is a correlation between. Dion being able to get some of the best coaches in the nation to come to Colorado and also the best, uh, you know, what he would call the best transfers or the best talent coming in. I think there is a correlation that he can see talent and he can see his vision and he's getting the guys he wants. I, you know, I've told you this before, John. I th- I'm kind of buying in what Dion has been selling a lot and I think they're going to be a little bit better than maybe what I think, you know, they're going to be competing for a bowl game this year. Oh, you think bowl game? I think th- I think they can get to six. Wow. I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't bet it. Um, I would bet they're over at four. They're they're total at four. If it's four and a half, that's where you're getting you know sketchy there. But I, I think they would go about four. I, I got I got about five. Tell me where you see the wins. Let's just go through the first five weeks of the season. Let me. Uh, I, I've, I've right. done this exercise. I have the all okay. the Pac-12 teams. Let, right. me, let me pull up their schedules. I'm interrupting what we're doing, and I'm just going to say they they open the season. I got it in front of me. I'll read it off, and you tell me win or lose. They open the season on September second at TCU. In Fort Worth, Texas, yeah, win I, or loss? I got it here. Okay, I got a loss to TCU. Okay, week two, Nebraska in Boulder at Force Folsom Field. Win. Maybe. Uh, Colorado new coach Matt Rule. <laughs> I mean, come yeah. on, it's not like they're not like they're talented. All right, Colorado State week three, at home. Win. You have them two and one. Yep. Game day is going to be in Eugene if they're two and one and the Ducks are three and zero. Oh. Yes, that's what I want. That's what I'm hoping for. At Oregon in week four, Autzen Stadium. That's a loss. So you have them two and two. Yep. USC. Loss. In week five. It's a loss. Two and three. At Arizona State in week six. I got them for a loss in that one. So they're starting the season in your mind, beating Nebraska, beating Colorado State. And uh, sitting on uh, four losses, they're two and four after six games. I got them beating Stanford in week seven. I okay. got them beating uh, Arizona in week 11 at home. And then the toss-up game with me would be four. at Washington State. Okay, so that would give them five. And I think they but, could I think they could sneak a winning against Arizona State as well. Um, I, I think those are your six potential wins if you're Colorado right there. I think it has the potential to be ugly. But I, I'd love to be wrong because I'd love to see game day – in the Pac-12 opener, I mean, are we, and are, we, are we sure that Oregon State's defense is going to be up to the task against a, a good offense? D- Coach Prime loves that their offensive attack they have. I mean, that's mm-hmm. at Colorado. It's not an easy place to play. I mean, I don't think that's a for sure win by Oregon State right now. I just, I don't think, or I don't think 
Colorado's going to be very good on offense. I think they've got skill position players. I'm not sure about the quarterback, Shador Sanders. I'm not sure. I, but they've got good skill position players on both sides of the ball. I don't like their offensive line, and I don't like their defensive line, but I'd love to be wrong because I'd love to see them 2-1. and one. I got him at five, John. I got him at five right now. I could okay. see six. Uh, it would be surprising, but six would be tough. But I, I think five. I think they're going above their total. I, I think they're going to surprise wow. them a little bit. Um, Steven is drinking the Coach Prime Kool-Aid. <laughs> I am. I mean, week one, TCU, they're 20-point dogs. Give me the 20 points in Coach Prime. Like, I think they I think you hang close, and then they beat Nebraska in that week two game. Ben Golliver, Washington Post NBA columnist, says Damian Lillard, is pulling a page out of the LeBron playbook, trying to get help. What does he mean? Here's Golliver punching. Hey, Jim, I'm seeing a page out of the LeBron James playbook here, aren't you? I mean, he's on Instagram Live drinking wine. He's, he's answering questions that uh, apply pressure to his team's front office to maybe go get him some help so they're not going to be stuck in these trade rumors. I mean, it seems to me like, uh, you know, he's taking a page out of LeBron's playbook and saying, hey, I don't want to just settle here. I want to be on a team that really has a chance to compete for titles. And I think really what Damian Lillard is, is doing here is he wants some help. You know, he's been waiting a while. Uh, the new front office there has been in place for, you know, a little bit more than a year now. And Damian Lillard's probably the biggest star in the NBA right now who doesn't necessarily have a, a clear-cut star-type sidekick to play with. And, and I think, it, you know, that's why you're seeing all this conversation. Will they trade the number three pick in the draft? Are they going to be able to put together a package to really get some help for him? Because he's at the stage of his career where it's like, you know, lottery seasons don't really do him any good. He's trying to get back to that Western Conference Finals. It's a tricky spot for the Blazers to be in, right? Because if you try to swing a home run deal, you can easily make a big mistake. And I would look back at the Minnesota Timberwolves last summer, right? They were feeling some similar pressure. Let's get over the hump. Let's try to put this team together and get on the winning path. They make that Rudy Gobert trade, and that trade is going to set them back for five or six years. I mean, there's no question about it. It's just an ill-advised decision. So if you're going to be swinging for the fences, Jim, you better hit the ball. You know, you can't come up empty because that could put this uh, this Blazers team and Lillard himself in an even tougher spot if they don't make the right move. Yeah, they have to make the right move, and I don't think they need to be in a hurry to do it. And that's the thing that everybody kind of looks at the draft and goes, okay, it's tied to this draft. But, I, you know, look, I don't see Portland – moving up in this draft but is it possible that somebody else wants that three pick then then maybe that does give you some incentive but it has to be a no-brainer it has to be a no-brainer deal for the blazers at three otherwise you make the pick somebody's got to come to you and say hey here's an offer you cannot refuse otherwise you make the pick this is really easy for joe cronin the problem is is joe cronin making the decision or is it burt cold you know, who's making the decision for the Blazers? What's the chain of command there? And if they go to make a trade, is Jody involved? Is the trustee involved at all? Or is it is it just Bert putting the roster together these days? Uh, Shams, uh, Charnia, is it Charnia? Charnia? Sharania. Sharania. Shams, we call him. <laughs> I mean, I just go Everybody Shams. Everybody calls him Shams. Uh, from The Athletic, talking about the Pelicans. Uh, at, uh, and whether or not they're willing to trade up for two or three. This is interesting. Dovetailing with the last conversation. Punch it. Pelicans are expected to aggressively pursue a top pick, potentially two or three, in this upcoming NBA draft with their eyes set on Scoot Henderson. Sources tell me. Henderson and Alabama's Brandon Miller are vying to potentially go number two to the Charlotte Hornets in the draft. Henderson worked out on Sunday in Charlotte, and Miller goes on Tuesday. 
Expect the Hornets to further solidify their draft board as this week closes, but the Pelicans are among teams seriously pursuing that number two overall pick. There it is. Uh, Pelicans trying to get to two. Are they willing to get to three? And at what price? Again, got to be a no-brainer for me, Stephen. How are you feeling about, you know, as the draft approaches, the Pelicans being interested in Scoot Henderson? Well, you talk about timing, and the timing may be draft night, John. If the, Pel- or if, the, if the Hornets decide, you know what, we like Brandon Miller, and they select him number two, I think that number three pick could have a lot of suitors and could have, you know, teams that you may not even think about like if the pelicans really want scoot henderson on draft night and he's available at three like what are they going to give up to get him and if, then if you're portland maybe you're in a good spot so i i think the whole draft does matter on what charlotte likes and i think if portland can get any type of intel on that of what they're like what they're leaning towards they can make a move and it's so interesting because scoot henderson is one of these guys where it sounds like some teams just absolutely love the guy and some teams are just you know they're kind of they're kind of mad on him and so what is Charlotte? What is Portland? What is New Orleans? I, I think there's going to be a lot of options, a lot of unknowns right now, but it's all about the timing. And I think the timing could be, it, I mean, we talk about it, it might be drafted. It may very well be that number three pick when the Blazers hit the clock. Teams may be calling and trying to get it in. So I think if you're Joe Cronin, you're the Blazers organization, you got to be on your P's and Q's right now. And you got to have every type of game plan thinked about because no one knows what's going to happen at two. And if the Blazers are stuck and they're just, you know, in a tough spot and they just make a rash decision, it's not going to work out. So they got to be ready for it. Um, but it seems like this number three pick is going to have a lot of value around the league. And hopefully if the Blazers want to pick, they pick a player. If they want to make a trade, they make a trade for a really good guy. It's interesting, too, because the action may happen in front of Portland. Like, Portland has to be prepared, right? Like, if Scoot Henderson is there and that's the guy they want at three, they take him. But if the Pelicans step in front of the Blazers and take Henderson, this becomes a Brandon Miller conversation, doesn't it? It does. It becomes a Brandon Miller. It becomes a, a Min Thompson conversation. And then at that point, is there a team that one, loves one of those guys? And you can trade out of that. So I think, yeah, it, it does matter what the Hornets are going to do at two. What that, what they do at two is going to matter what the Blazers do throughout the entire draft of three. I mean, it's just so it's, it's so crazy because no one knows what's going to happen. And it sounds like, you know, the Pelicans want to come up to whether two or three. Maybe the Pelicans are offering Brandon Ingram or they're offering Zion Williamson for the number three pick to get Scoot Henderson. Is Portland good to take that? Is that a good enough offer? I don't know. I mean, it's, there's a lot of thoughts you can think about this. Fun to talk about. Mike Malone talking about the Nuggets. If you're a Blazer fan, pay attention to this. How did the Nuggets build their team? Some teams mortgage their future for a star player. Denver did not. It points to ownership. Here's Mike Malone. Punch it. And, and everybody, every individual, and more importantly, every team collectively has to pick a path and stay true to it. And, and I feel really fortunate that our journey has been one of patience, one of drafting really well and uh, developing those players. Um, and then adding the, the right pieces around them. To your point, you add an Aaron Gordon, a KCP, a uh, Bruce Brown, whatever it may be. So, um, But everybody wants to do it differently. Some teams want to mortgage their future and try to go get the, the surefire player, the all-star. And, and for us, you know, there's never been a, a rushed mentality, and that starts with their ownership. You know, the Kroenke family has been phenomenal since day one allowing this thing to kind of play itself out and not overreacting to little bumps in the road. Um, and I think there are other teams in this league that are looking at how we've done it, smaller market teams, how we've done it. And I think more teams will try to, you know, kind of, you know, make this a blueprint. There you go. You're a Blazer fan. You're listening to Michael Malone. You're, te- you're keeping the damn three pick. 
and you're taking the best player that's on the board. It's a Scoot Henderson, it's a Brandon Miller, and it's a, hey, point to the future, compile young assets, let's get players here the way that Denver got Nikola Jokic, the way that Denver got Jamal Murray. Denver drafted well, stuck with their players, uh, and I think he's, you know, does it change how you think, Stephen, as you approach the draft or or do you view it as well? That's it worked for Denver. It doesn't work for everybody. I think it, it doesn't work for everybody, but I do think it works for smaller market teams. And I think Portland falls into that where you, know, you look at three of their better players: Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, all drafted. Yes, it wasn't by tanking; it's just by good drafting, good scouting that the team had. And so I think with Portland, you made a great pick with Damian Lillard. It didn't work out. You didn't put the right guys around him. So I think you're going forward. You draft, you develop, and then, like Mike Malone said, then you add the extra pieces on top of it. You get Aaron Gordon in the trade where you trade a couple first-round picks, and that's how you build, um, I think, here. So, you know, for me, it doesn't change anything. I still want the Blazers to draft someone at three because I think that's the best way the Blazers will ever eventually be a championship contender. That's how you do it. But I think Mike Malone hit it on the head right there. Like, he, you know, he, they got lucky. They got Nikola Jokic, and they did a good job of building around him, and now they're one win away from uh, getting a championship. Isn't he saying, though, that, look, most teams have the draft, they have trade, and they have free agency. Most general managers will say, these are the tools that we use to build our roster. But the Blazers don't really have free agency as a major building block tool. So you're left with draft and trade. And trades are a crapshoot because you're often taking their problem for your problem. So if you don't use your picks, if you don't pick at three, you're essentially cutting off your your most viable artery to talent. And to Denver's credit, I remember when they made the Porter Jr. pick, it got criticized. People said, well, he's not going to be ready. Oh, it's time. You know, you know, is he going to be a star player? He, he was really young. He was raw. And people kind of wondered, would he pan out? And he did. And Jamal Murray, that's a great pick. But, and the same thing is, yeah, I mean, you, they didn't go out. You know, Bruce Brown was a free agent signing, but it was two years, $13 million. It's not like they yeah. paid him max money. It was the trade for KCP. It's a trade for Aaron Gordon. Like, the same thing with the Blazers. It's the draft, and then it's the trade to add on, like, the piece to put you over the top. You're not going to get the big free agent signing. So I, I think I think he's saying a lot of things that small market teams should do. If you're in Phoenix, if you're in Miami, you're Brooklyn, you're, you can trade for these guys and just mortgage future, and I think that's okay as well. It just hasn't worked out either way in the NBA. So, like, I do think the best way to build a championship team is to draft well and then fit around those type of players. Yeah, I think you end up looking at, you know, the Blazers' future through a uh, different prism. And I think um, if you are a uh, if you are a Blazer fan, keep an eye on the draft, how the franchise is going to build this roster and. Uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see who's in charge on draft day as well. Will we get a sense of how the Blazers roster is going to be built? Sure. Will we get a sense of who is building it? That is another, uh, that is another piece of and, the puzzle. And one last thing he said at the start, John. He said, pick a direction and go with it. Portland's got to pick a direction. They haven't done this in years Pick a direction, whether it is you're going to go all in with Dame and make a trade, do it, or you're going to go young, do it. you got to choose a direction, though. I 100% agree with that. Uh, leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. I think we're hearing a Mike Malone. Is that Mike Malone we're hearing in the background, Stephen? Picking up some Mike Malone there? But the thing I love about him is he's, you like, hearing he's that? totally a team guy. I do. Totally I don't even know where it's coming from. Where is that coming from? He tries to make people Check Judah. That night. must be Judah over there. 
Maybe his channel's up. He's listening to something. The mic's open. I don't know. Could be that. Right. Could be I think something we got else. it. I think I figured okay. it out there. All right. Thanks for getting on that. I was not enjoying hearing Mike Malone. Uh, Anna's in studio. Anna, welcome. Yeah, I thought yeah. I, I thought it was just me. I you, thought I was hearing voices. You're hearing the voices of the Denver Nuggets coach in your <laughs> in your head all day long. It always like people always said things like, "Okay, if you could get one song stuck in your head, and you had to have one song stuck in your head Ooh. for the rest of your life." Do you have a song that would be stuck in your head? Uh-huh. And uh, that's a really easy one for me. Really? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, because... For the rest of your life? But, well, and I, that's easy for you? Well, okay, let's do this. You can only eat one food every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's an easy one for me as well. With uh, chicken fried rice. You've said that before. Yeah. And that mystifies me too. Every day. All the time. <laughs> chicken I would never fried get, rice. I would never get tired of it. I call BS on that. Try me. I you'd be done with that in a week. There's different varieties. Like I'd go to different places well, you to didn't get it. Say that I could get a little different twist on it, you couldn't didn't I? Say that. Uh, it, okay, it's the same food every day, all day. I mean, granted, you'd get tired of anything. Yeah, I know. So my thing would be chicken fried rice. What's mm -hmm. your food, Stephen? What's your food, Anna? Well, could you cha could you change it so it's just fried rice and not chicken fried rice? Because then, like you said, then you could change it up a little bit. I guess I wouldn't have to eat like, the chicken. I could just pick the chicken out of it one day. Like, can I go? Like, can I go pizza and then go different flavors? No, but you could go. Uh, okay, you go combination pizza, and then you could pick off things and you could make it like it, today. It's mm. mushroom. Tomorrow it's sausage. Yeah, then it's like a veggie pizza one day, and then a meat yeah. pizza the next day. You're go. like I'd... the guy. You're like the kid when you go, hey, you know, you rub on a lamp, you get three wishes. You go, oh, I wish for more wishes. That is me. I would. I would definitely do that. <laughs> My favorite part about this conversation is how put out Stephen sounds, and yeah. even the one suggestion food. of this idea. <laughs> yeah, just. We do ask for me. One food? Get out of here. Uh, okay, uh, so you're going pizza, combo pizza. I'm going chicken fried rice. Anna, what's the food that you're eating if you have to only eat one food all the time, rest of your life? Well, now that you've thrown in the variation portion of that, I would go with some kind of jambalaya. Because, hmm. you know, again, the idea that you could pick out certain things and change it up for yourself a little bit. I don't know about jambalaya. Why not Feels jambalaya? like it's a bit much. What do you have against jambalaya? Feels like it's a bit much. I'm actually just saying that <laughs> because I like the word jambalaya. Okay, but isn't chicken fried rice kind of a balanced meal? <laughs> there's a little bit of protein. Yeah. There's a kind of carbohydrate in it. Isn't is jambalaya a little spicy too? Yeah. Sure, but I can I can do that. I I, I don't know Every if my stomach meal, could, though. Oh, yeah. My stomach would be like no. Maybe the spice would just burn <laughs> off my taste buds, so then it would just all taste. Just do you think you'd intentionally get COVID so you could lose? Your sense of smell and taste. Mm. So you're just like, I can't do it anymore. I yeah. can't do jambalaya. Mm -hmm. One more day. Mm -hmm. And people be like, what'd you have for lunch? Jambalaya. What'd you have for dinner? Jambalaya. Mm. Uh, on that note, so... Uh, on that note, the, I can't the wait song, for this segue. The song that you get stuck... I'm going somewhere sporty with this. Okay. The song that you get stuck in your head. I go with... I have to have a song that's upbeat. Okay. It might not be the best song to have in my head as I'm trying to fall asleep, but I would. I have two options. I would either go with this song. Oh no! I came to dance, 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 dance. I hit the floor. Cause you know why? Who's not going through their day 
feeling upbeat with uh, Teo Cruz and Dynamite playing in the back of your, like your soundtrack as you're walking down the street. Can you imagine I'm walking down the street right now? Yeah, I just can't imagine you doing that more than two weeks in a row to that song. And there's and there's two different songs. There's like two different songs in this song. You know? Yeah, layered. Okay. The, the other the other option that I have <laughs> what? That's ridiculous. I really I really I have thought this through. I know you have. I'm already other, tired of that song, by the way. The, yeah, already. <laughs> Steven's done. He was done on the first beat. Steven, you know why that song means something to me? I, special to me? Why? We were in Vegas. Anna and I were in Vegas several years ago. And we were uh outside at the pool at one of these Vegas uh casino hotels. And that song was playing, and it was outside one of the beach clubs. We were on the other side of the hedge, okay? Mm. This giant hedge was like 30 feet tall. That music's playing on the other side. I could hear people laughing and splashing and <laughs> and seemingly like, in my mind, I thought, there's a beach ball involved. There's a woman on somebody's shoulders in the pool wearing a bikini. They're playing, They're passing the beach ball back and forth. We knew there was beach balls involved People, because we could see them yeah. popping up above yeah. the hedge. Well, you'd see a yeah, beach ball would come up every once in a while. But then I thought people are going to be on the other side of that hedge drinking beer out of the pitcher. They're not even going to have a glass. <laughs> and so we go, I said, Anna, you want to go in there? Because that, that song's playing. And she says, okay, I'll go in there. So we go over, and I said, yeah, you know, I'd like to get into this beach club. And they waved me through. And I got in there, and I got to tell you, Stephen, it was exactly what I thought it would be. There were women on top of guys' shoulders passing the beach ball back and forth. People were drinking out of the pitcher. I was like, forever when I hear that song, I get a smile on my face because it reminds me of a place that uh, I once was. It all makes sense then, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a great time and a great uh, Vegas story. So, okay, I'm okay with that choice now. In fact, it was one of those rare occurrences where the thing that is marketed a certain way, like even the videos that they would show in the in-room hotel channel, you know, like it actually matched. Like you walked through the hedge and it was like it was like ordering something off a restaurant menu where you're looking at the picture and it never looks like what the picture is. That was one of the rare instances in which, you know, the proof was in the pudding. I also think that that holds up for certain products. I like products that advertise themselves a certain way and deliver. Nasal spray. It just is what it says it is. You use it and you're like, that was nasal spray. It delivered. Uh That's why the beach club at the the Vegas pool delivers. Uh, All right, here's my second Uh song. If I got it stuck in my head forever, I'd be okay with. I'm at a payphone trying to call home all of my change I spent on you. If I'm in the bank making a transaction at the ATM, yeah. if I'm uh, doing the radio show right now, I'm okay with this plan in the background. Mm-hmm. It's got good energy to it. It's not obnoxious. Um, you know, it's pleasant to it. You know, I, I could fall asleep to this song. I could dance to this song. Probably better to fall asleep to it. But do you have a song, 
Stephen or Anna that uh, you know delivers for you. Like if you had to get a, st- a song stuck in your head, and granted, I'm going somewhere with sports here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring it full circle. Mm-hmm. But do you have a song that uh, that you don't you wouldn't mind having stuck in your head? Stephen, you go. Uh, I I trying to think. I no, okay. not not one okay. in particular that I can think of. Just, I, I mean, just random songs get stuck in my head if I hear them. But no, I, I usually do a good job of keeping them out. Okay, so then on that note, then I get to pick the song that gets stuck in your head. Yeah, do it, please. <laughs> you okay with this? Seriously? Good night, Stephen. Does it work, Stephen? Stephen, why do you look so irritated? Because you have ACDC TNT playing in your head all day long. It doesn't really work. Doesn't really. It's a good walk-up song. It's a good walk-up song for a hitter in baseball. But you don't want that in your head. Not every day, all day long, trying to have a serious conversation. Anna, do you have a song? I do. I actually do have a song. What's your song? Uh, I have a couple. One is Try Everything by Shakira. Mm, I don't That's have a, a lot one. of Shakira in my playlist on the That's thing. one that I like to sing. And it's meaningful to me because I sing it to the girls because it's the message that I want them to have, which is to try things and to be courageous and Jeez. not be afraid. Of my it. song's about Vegas and bikinis, and your song's about, like, the soul of children. <laughs> it says a lot it's about okay. us. Well, we both have songs that, you know, are meaningful in some way. It's called Try... Try everything. Everything by Shakira. By Shakira. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna see if I can uh, if I can pull up a try everything by. And so, why is it that you like it so much? Well, um, the girls know that that's my anthem to them. Really, it's like the you know the lyrics are great, uh, the message is great because you know it's like as parents, like what what do we want for our kids is to have resilience and to have courage and not be afraid to go out into the world and, uh, you know, endeavor to accomplish new things or have Wait, new experiences. Wait, is this from the Little Mermaid movie? I don't think so. Zootopia. No, it's from Zootopia. Oh, Yeah, okay. it's from Zootopia. I missed up tonight. I lost another fight. I still miss up, but I'll just start again. I keep falling down. at the pool party and you're parenting that's how this works okay so i know i promise you i'm going to sports on this one but so if you had to get one sports personality or highlight or sports moment stuck in your head forever and you couldn't get it out of your head do you have a moment that you would be okay having just uh, that's playing over and over in your head it could be Charles Barkley giving highlights. It could be uh, play-by-play. It could be your favorite play-by-play broadcaster. It could be, um, you know, a, a historic call from Blazers history. It could be Bill Shonley, 1977, calling, you know, Maurice Lucas and Daryl Dawkins. Into Gilliam, put it up, doesn't drop. Dawkins, the rebound, along with Bob Hope. 
was a spectator that that got out. Now you, you get that stuck in your head over and over. Oh, we got a good one. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Do you have one that you would? be okay having stuck in your head or a broadcaster or Charles Barkley he's funny like what if you just had his voice over and over like we started this segment Mike Malone you thought it was in your head yeah. see how I brought that first full circle Stephen uh, do you have a moment a broadcaster Stephen A. Smith Skip Bayless Chuck who's in your head oh man um, who are you okay with I'm okay with I'm okay with Chuck um the thing about Charles Barkley is I don't take him seriously like mm-hmm. I know he doesn't necessarily watch the games, and so he just he's just there to be entertaining. Bill Walton's another one of those type of guys for me. Like I can listen to Bill Walton call anything. Uh, I think that's the right answer for me is Bill Walton. Okay, like, so you, you would have Bill Walton. Yeah, like him just talking. If I'm watching a sports game, I would love to have Bill Walton just tell stories about anything, and I, I'm in. Here in Portland, yes, it's a celebration of Phil Knight and all things great and Nike and college basketball, but last night... A terrible thing happened. My great friend, Steve Snapper Jones, he took his last breath down in Houston where he's been living lately. With Muhammad Ali and Howard Bingham there, Steve Jones was honored by the Blazers, one of the finest human beings I have ever known. Steve Jones, 10 years older than I am, Steve Jones, he saved my basketball career. He made my broadcasting career. An incredible spirit, an incredible soul, a 30-year network broadcasting career with all the big boys, with CBS, with NBC, with ABC, with ESPN. Just absolutely incredible what he was able to do. A Portland native, Steve Franklin High School, went to the University of Oregon and always told me that he was the greatest basketball player in the history of the state of Oregon. And who was I to disagree? Because here was this, this fantastic soul, this force of light and optimism and hope who always saw the big picture and Steve's ability to inspire. He was a longtime broadcaster for the Trailblazers. He called so many championship games at every single level. He was a pillar in the community. He was just a better than perfect human being, an incredible teammate, and someone who was always looking out for everyone else. He made it fun. He made it a joy. We couldn't wait to get together to work. The guy was just absolutely instrumental in my whole life, but in people's understanding of not only how to play basketball, but how to live your life. Steve, we'll remember you forever. We're going to just keep playing all day long. Thea Gilmore's version of Bob Dylan's All Remember You. We love you, Steve. We miss you. The candles are lit. And we're praying for a better tomorrow. Thanks for your life, Steve, which has given me and everybody else around here ours. Thank you, Steve Snapper Joe. 75 years young. Now, in addition to working on broadcast, there it is. You, you don't mind that? I don't mind that at all. When you watch a, it's when you watch so a game, good. it's so yeah. good. There's so much stuff going on in the background. I have no idea what's happening, but I'm just listening to Bill Walton talk. Like I just, I love it. That's good stuff. I love that. Anna, yeah, who do you want stuck in your head from a sports standpoint? It's really simple for me. Um, it's just the blazer like sound, the, the, the trumpets <laughs> that play at the beginning and end of the blazer broadcast because mm-hmm. that's like my whole childhood right there. Well, maybe not my whole childhood, yeah. but just a big part of my childhood and the nostalgia that that brings back for me sitting on our orange shag carpet uh, over in northeast Portland 
and uh, you know, rally caps on getting ready for Bill Shonley. You're good there. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Yeah, just very that. simple. Yeah, it's so simple. What what you, the shag carpet? I can see it. Yeah, it, yeah. it's so interesting that you said that. Wall to wall. I want you as a listener <laughs> to tell me you get a sports moment stuck in your head, you can't shake it for life. Which moment is it? 503-417-7575. Which can you live with as a as a sports fan? Give me the soundtrack to your sports life. And a guy on Twitter say, oh, come on. That's an easy one. I'll tell you what uh, soundtrack he picked coming up. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Turk182 uh, has called in. Turk, give me a sports moment that you could have stuck in your head forever and not mind one bit. Turk's gone. I, a lot of build up there. I really sold that. Yeah. And then Turk dropped. Mm-hmm. Man. Dave in Vancouver, give me a sports moment that you could have stuck in your head forever and not mind one bit. All right. Well, this is kind of crazy. There's so many awesome sports moments, but I could listen to this every day and I still laugh. Is uh, Kevin Harlan doing the cat on the field? Oh yeah. It's just it's just so fun to listen to. Yep, I like that Monday Night Football. Going down to the turf. Oh, there's a cat on a black cat is taking the field. A black cat is running from the 20 to the near side, the 10, and he got in the end zone at the other end of the field. A shotgun snap from the 39 in Dallas. Here's a short throw down the middle, caught by Ingram. Caught at the 35, went to the 30. Now the cat running the other way, and so is Ingram at the 30 to the 25 to the 24-yard line of the Dallas Cowboys. It's a catch run at 15. Now the cat is stopped at the 50. The cat, the black cat, is at the other end of the field. He's Black at the cat eight. doesn't know that it was last Thursday that was Halloween. Thursday oh, night right. football, yeah, not he's, Monday night football. He's a little bit late. Now he's at the five. He's Who brought walking. the cat? He's walking to the three. <laughs> he's at the two. And the cat is in the CDW red zone. CDW people who get it now. A policeman, a state trooper has come on the field. And the cat runs into the end zone. That is a touchdown. And the cat is elusive. Kind of like Barkley and Elliott. But he didn't know where to go. Look at they're trying to corner him. And they got him in the end zone. There are state troopers all around this cat, which now climbs up into the stands. And the fans are running for their life. Now it goes back on the field again. And it's running in the back of the end zone. And it runs up the tunnel. (laughs) And there it goes into your brain forever. Uh, It's interesting because... Play-by-play is play-by-play. It's just like Bill Shonley when he goes into basketball, into boxing. And Kevin Harlan, who's just fantastic on football, just transitions right into calling the cat on the field. Had you heard that before? Anna? I had not, and yeah. that was brilliant. That, that and the Kevin Harlan drunk fan call is a good one, too. Yeah. Do we have that I one? Got, I got it right here. Okay, go ahead. Let's do it. Maybe. Hold on. Hey, somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat. And a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. Now he runs the opposite way. He runs at the 50. He runs at the 40. The guy is drunk, but there he goes. The 20. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. Waving his arms, bare-chested. Somebody stop that man. Here comes the blue coat, Oh, they got him. They're coming from the left. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line. Love that. I could get that stuck in my head, too. 
Brad is in Sandy. Brad, what sports call would you not mind having stuck in your head forever? Hey, John. Yeah, this one's easy for me, uh, being a big Oregon fan. It's got to be Jerry Allen's call uh, when Darren Thomas took that last snap at Research Stadium before they headed to the national title game. I think he he kind of broke down in that moment. Yeah, that, you no, know, absolutely. I did, too. <laughs> Uh, it, but why was it so cathartic for you? Because I talked to Jerry Allen about it, and it was, it was sort of like you know, uh, you know, it, for him it was a long time in the waiting. But what about it? What was it for you? You know, I grew up a Duck fan since I mean I can remember, and I think it was just getting over that 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 barrier of you know being. Um, you know, with the brand getting the the way it was or the way it is now, just getting big and then finally making that jump to where, you know, I mean, because we've been there twice now. And I felt like that was the first time um, jumping over that barrier and getting to the national championship game. I just kind of felt like that was really when um, the spotlight really just showed upon the yeah. program. And, and it, it just, I don't know, it just, it was sentimental to me, to be honest. And that was that was the end of that was the 2010 Civil War, right? Yeah, was yes, it right? Yes. Is that right? It is down to 38 seconds, and Thomas takes the snap, and the field is rushed by players, and the fans want to come out but won't be able to. But they'll celebrate in the stands as the team heads down to the end zone, and fans everywhere. 114 years they've waited 10 seconds on the clock and Oregon is going to play in the national championship game 2-1 it's official Oregon is going to be in the BCS championship game can you believe the magical season this has become and it's not over Oregon and their fans, their team, the band, all down on the corner of the end zone, celebrating, congratulating each other, and living in the moment. And somewhere down in that humanity, a soaking wet Chip Kelly is talking to the media about his team and what they have accomplished. Unbelievable to have been a part of this. Oh, my gosh. Jerry Allen on the call. We'll take more of your phone calls. <laughs> that soundtrack, that sports moment that lives in your head, and you're okay with it. 503-417-7575. The 5 at 5 coming up as well. Give me that sports moment that lives in your mind, or you you wouldn't mind having live in your mind. Is it renting space in your head, or is, is it okay? I had a Duck fan on Twitter suggest that the Jerry Allen call of Kenny Wheaton. Kenny Wheaton's going to score. It would be fine by him. He says it already lives in his head. Kenny Wheaton in the pick. Sure, you're going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted! Intercepted! The Ducks have the ball! Down to the 35, the 40. Kenny Wheaton's going to score! Kenny Wheaton is going to score! 20, touchdown! Touchdown! Kenny Wheaton! The interception! The most improbable finish to a football game! Had another Blazer fan on social media suggest that 
It's this call. He wouldn't mind living in his head forever. Blake to inbound. The Blazers have a 20-second timeout. Dave McMillan deciding whether to use it. Blake now throws to Roy. Brandon, a three-pointer out front. Hit it! Yes, he did! Oh, yeah! Wow! Are you kidding me? The natural, the natural buries a 30-footer at the buzzer. And the Blazers run off the court. A winner by two. Yet another sports fan who listens to this show said, no, 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 no. It's this call that lives in my head forever. They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. Boom. What is that moment? I get chills with all of those. There's something about a great play-by-play call. We'll get to the 5 at 5 momentarily. I want to take a couple calls here. Turk 182 is called back. Turk, what's that sports moment that can live in your head and you're just fine yeah, with it? Dude, I'm sorry about it earlier. I, I got cut off. And Anyways, Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes. That's one of the best calls ever. Secondarily, Bill Buckner. <laughs> I'm going to give you Al Michaels. When you watch it, it's so painful. Ten seconds. You've got ten seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to so five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. You talk about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. How about Vin Scully on the 86 World Series? Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. Oh, the Mets win it. Bill Buckner, we had him on the show. We had him on this show. He, it still bothered him. Uh, It was years ago we had him on. It still bothered him that people remembered him for that. Am I still on right now? Yeah, you're on. Yeah, so he was on an episode of uh, uh, Kirby Enthusiasm, and they threw him a baseball, and he missed it, and it hit a lady in the face. It was the funniest thing you ever saw. It was just classic. <laughs> oh, Kirby Enthusiasm, one of my favorites. Oh, one of my favorites. Did you ever uh, <laughs> Ron Burgundy doing Miracle on Ice? Did you? Because we heard Al Michaels do. Did you ever? Have you ever heard Ron Burgundy? Do do uh, Miracle on Ice? It was a little different call, apparently. Al Michaels. Is this Miracle on Ice? This is Miracle on Ice. Okay. <clears throat> 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it the wrong way. <clears throat> sorry. I really want to be true to the way Al Michaels did that historic call. Okay. <clears throat> 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. Countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in Miracles? Yes. He didn't do it that way. Oh, he was very composed. He, yes. No, no. He was. Do yeah. you believe in miracles? No, yes. no, no. He barely whispered it almost. I remember yeah. him. It yeah. seemed maybe I, I was really young, and it sounded like yeah. He was I think we, were, you know, we like to remember mm. things differently 
Uh, but no, he he almost turned off his microphone. I remember. <laughs> he almost <laughs> turned off his microphone. That's one guest I haven't had on the show. I would like to get on the show. I I you know. And by the way, somebody asked me over the weekend, why don't you do the get him on the show thing anymore? Well, we need to get, get him on the show. We need to get Will Ferrell on the show. Mm-hmm. That would be. We've had President Obama on the show, Mike Tyson, a bunch of other people, Bill Walton. You know, we've had other people on the show. I want Ron Burgundy, a.k.a. Will Ferrell, on this show. Um, I explained why we don't play that liner uh, on the Saturday mailbag, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. We used to have, not anymore, we used to have a program director at the station who didn't want us to play that liner. Why? Because they wanted, they went to a more Disney-sounding voice. Oh. That guy's voice, and I, I, did, I wrote a whole thing about it. That guy, it was the voice of Westwood One in the NFL. Get him yeah. on the show. His voice is the baritone. And yeah. Like, I like that. Very distinct. And uh, we had this one PD, one-time program director, who said, no, we're going to the Disney sound. And uh, people may, may not remember, um, uh, we did a whole bit where we had uh, a bunch of people try out with, uh, you know, getting them on the show. Oh, yeah. And like we, everybody on the everybody show got on to the, say the phrase yeah. to see if any of us could pull it off mm-hmm. and have the same gravitas. And nobody did. And uh, I think I deleted them out of the system. They were so bad. Yeah. That's how bad Makes the sense. calls were. Makes but, sense. But I used to do get them on the show or get her on the show. Just because I thought it was kind of fun. Get her on the show. To watch the program director fire me an email after I did it each mm-hmm. time going, we yeah. don't use that guy's voice anymore. Yeah, you're like Maverick buzzing the tower. Yeah, and I was mm-hmm. like, what did you say? Yeah. And we would just do it again. And it was my own amusement, nobody else's, but it still was amusing to me. Mark's in Portland. Mark, uh, what do you got? I got what every old guy like me has the only uh, the only time we've ever closed the deal was the Blazers winning the title. I was in downtown Portland, uh, was uh, working the Rose Festival cleanup, you know, in high school. And uh, mm-hmm. the 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 guy, the Rose Festival guy that got us the job, had us in a motel watching the end of the game. And after they won that game, John, the party just started. Uh, I think I quit my job after a couple hours because it was such a great party downtown. <laughs> And you know it was it was a ticker tape. People painted their cars, and you know now with the thirty thirty with Bill Walton on, it's just bringing back all those memories. And it was, you know, it was it was my the end of my junior year going into my senior year in high school. So it was prime time, and it was the greatest celebration you could imagine. When you know just Sean Lee calling the last sequence with because the uh, Philadelphia had a chance to tie that game with McGinnis, and he just barely shot it short and Walton tipped the ball to midcourt and the city of Portland just exploded. And it was, it was a great party. I just remember a law enforcement officer. I, I told him that a bunch of 17, 18 year olds were down there drinking and partying. And he said, Hey, this is a once in a lifetime. And then he called my, he called at me and said, Hey son. I said, yes. He said, if I see you down here tomorrow doing this, you're going to jail. (laughs) They just kind of, it was a it was a controlled party. I don't know if that would happen today. And the other great moment for me, even though it didn't end well, was when Jeffrey Mail caught the two point conversion and Oregon yeah. tied Auburn in the national title game. Right, that I'm moment, gonna gi- I'm going to give you both. How about that? Let's start. Five with this. seconds to go. The 
leading 109 to 107. Three will inbound. Here we go. The inbound of McGinnis. Drive, stop, pump, shoot, short, no go. and Walden trying to fight through the traffic and go into the locker room. The Portland Trailblazers, at about 2 minutes and 18 seconds past the hour of 2 o'clock, have won the World Championship. Bill Shonley on the call. Here's Jerry Allen in the National Championship. Thomas on the snap to throw. Runs right. Looks. Throws back. He's got him. Got it! It's good, Jeff BCS National Championship game, and it is every bit the game we thought it would be. Maybe not as high scoring, but nail-biting every bit of the way. Ian is in Wilsonville. Ian, welcome to the conversation. Yeah, hey, John. Uh, Bay Area guy. I've got two. Uh, one would be, obviously, the uh, Cal Stanford. I'm a Cal guy. Big and game. then uh, the other one would be... Uh, the Cats, Dwight Clark, baby. Uh, I think those are two great ones for uh, Bay Area folks. Yeah, uh, if you have a preference there. Uh, you know what, I'll give you Joe Starkey. I think I can pull up Joe Starkey, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, I have this clip in the last interview I did with him, so bear with me here. But Joe Starkey, yeah. this is Cal Stanford, big game. I mean, one of the most improbable, unbelievable finishes in college football history. Happened with Joe Starkey on the call. I'm going to see if I, uh, if I can pull this thing up. I don't know if I've got it, but uh, we'll try it. Harmon will probably try to squib it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline. Another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rodgers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to Joe Starkey on the call. Love that. Appreciate that, Ian in Wilsonville. Uh, so we could take calls on this all day. We're going to get to the 5 at 5, we promise. Let's do it here. Here's the 5 at 5, 12 with Anna leading the show. The 5 at 5, 12. Anna's number one story <laughs> as you see it. 
Anna, what do you got? Uh, former Trailblazers executive is heading to Major League Soccer. So the league announced today that Chris McGowan uh, will be going to the MLS, which of course includes the Portland Timbers. He will become the MLS executive vice president and chief club performance officer. He's worked most recently uh, for a Detroit enterprise that includes the Tigers and the Detroit Red Wings. That's after leaving the Blazers in 2021. Uh, Really interesting how it's being received. Of course, MLS commissioner Don Garber congratulating themselves on the hire. He's saying that uh, McGowan has leadership qualities, (laughs) track record of success in the industry, and lifelong passion for soccer that makes him the ideal executive to lead this important new department. I I reached out to McGowan today. I wished wished him luck, and I I mean that sincerely. He is, I think he's he's one of the good guys in professional sports. You know, and I think his departure from Trailblazers, Inc. was a signal that maybe things weren't headed in the right direction. Maybe he wasn't happy with Jody Allen, Burt Cold, breathing over his shoulder. He will be full-time in soccer, which is something he wanted to do. Um, you know, he told me he thinks uh, he can he can learn from Don Garber and Gary Stevenson, the commissioner and the president, but he'll be in soccer the whole time. And, and I think it's good for Chris McGowan. It's good to see good people getting good promotions. There's And look, I, the world of professional sports can be cutthroat. And I think Chris McGowan is proof that you can be a good person, try to do right by your consumer, and still exist in that world. Number two, as you see it. Go ahead. Coach Deion Sanders talking about Colorado football, the roster overhaul, problems with NIL, and building a contender. He is defending the roster overhaul, saying that we're assembling the type of men and staff to compete for the college football playoffs what is the commonality that all the teams that went to the playoffs had last year? They had talent. They had a quarterback. We got that. That's what we brought into the house. It's interesting that he's uh, he's talking about. It. I, I think it's. I think they got. You know, they're probably hearing the questions and hearing the chorus of people that are going, "Hey, they're not going to compete. Hey, it's a lot of hype. Yes, they're in the portal. Uh, do they treat people poorly? I'm not going to get into all that because I actually think Colorado did. Like they play within the rules here. They're, they're using the portal to their advantage, and they're using it as it, you know, maybe not it's designed to be used. It was supposed to be uh, for the benefit of athletes and players, but I also think you've got coaches who can get out and and also utilize the portal, and Colorado's using it. They're going to be better than they were a year ago. The question is, will they be a bowl-eligible team? Will they even flirt with it, or will they be um, – you know, will they just be kind of a story where, ooh, it's a, it, they're a year away? Um, his athletic director, Rick George, sort of echoes those sentiments. He, he said, hey, he's followed the rules. Well, look, I mean, the NCAA put that rule in place, uh, you know, for coaches to be able to change their roster. Um, was it more than usual? Probably yes. But, you know, if we recall 18 months ago, we had 27 of our players that left on their own volition that there wasn't a lot of uproar other than they were pointing it at us or why are you letting them leave? So, you know, there's a rule in place. The transfer rule allows flexibility in that. And, um, you know, uh, it was put in place so that coaches in their first year would have an opportunity to change their roster around. And coach has done it. And he's gone out and got some really good um, you know, student athletes to fill those voids, and um, 
you know, I'm looking forward to the summer and the fall and how they're going to build culturally and as a team uh, heading into the 20, uh, our 100th season at Folsom Field. Now, specifically, Sanders was telling a podcast in this interview that people made a big stink out of who they let go, but not a big stink out of who they brought in. Mm. He's saying there's competition now at practice, that you've got to compete even to get on the darn field. Everybody is over six foot at the cornerback position with long arms, can jump out of the gym and are very athletic. The safeties are physical, versatile, and cover the slot. They go get the ball. The receiving core is ridiculous. I mean, talk about, like, talking up the brand. He's doing a great job of selling the team. Yeah, and look, they, they sold out their season tickets. Evidence there. And, and uh, you know, I'm not rooting against them here, but I'm, I'm really curious. I think a lot of people are curious to see how, how much success and how soon at Colorado. Number three story, Anna. Go. Did you see what happened with the Floyd Mayweather and John Gotti third fight? This was just an exhibition fight, and it ended in total chaos on Sunday night. Multiple brawls breaking out after the fighters were done with each other in the ring. Uh, Gotti III was disqualified for holding in Mm. the sixth round. He still tried to throw punches at Mayweather, and that led to several people jumping into the ring to protect the boxer. Uh, it was the, you know, it was Gotti's own grandson who kicked off the melee by trying to go after Mayweather. It's so strange. Wow. Uh, I don't know. It, it feels more sideshow than sports to me. Yeah. But you know, Floyd Mayweather's in the middle of it, and so it's going to make use. Uh, you know. A disqualification. It was trash talking all the way through the fight. Like the, I think the referee had the toughest job over the weekend of anybody. But you know, he was trying to separate the boxers, and they were still trying to throw punches at each other. People jumping into the ring. It was just a mess. It was a mess all the way around. Number four story, as you see it, Anna. Well, this one's kind of sad. I know that um, we had talked uh, a while ago about a U.S. sprinter, Tori Bowie, who died uh, in early May. Uh, Authorities were asked to go perform a welfare check on her. She was only 32 years old, this U.S. Olympic champion sprinter. But the autopsy results are out now, and it turns out that she died from complications of childbirth. Um, she was in labor? She was estimated to be eight months pregnant in an active labor at the uh. time of her death. She had um, respiratory distress, eclampsia, and we've learned that all now because of the, the autopsy. She won all three of her Olympic medals at the 2016 Rio Games. Really sad story. Yeah. I mean, all the way around. And uh, decorated athlete. I think it's hard enough, you know... There's a lot of talk about women in track and field who become pregnant, and it becomes very difficult for them to compete. And so that this story, I think, has obviously a at the heart of it, there is a tragedy. And then peripherally, I keep thinking about athletes like Allison Felix who have talked about, hey, I want to have a family, and I also want to be a track and field star. And they have to balance that and almost schedule their pregnancies in non-Olympic years so that they can get back in shape and go out and train. I mean, it's a heartbreaking story at its core, though, and um, really sad, really sad stuff. Number five. Stephen A. Smith says the Miami Heat should target Damian Lillard if they lose to the Nuggets in the NBA Finals. He says that the, if the Miami Heat 
got their hands on Damian Lillard that he promises that we wouldn't be talking about Miami going home in five mm. games. He's saying, let him out of Trailblazer prison. Let him go. Get some assets. Because he doesn't believe that uh, Portland will get marquee free agents. I don't believe Portland will get marquee free agents either, but... Portland's not just going to give away Damian Lillard. They're going to need a, uh, you want Damian Lillard, offer a lopsided deal. And a lopsided deal for Lillard is going to have to bring a haul in return. Stephen, not Stephen A. Smith, but Stephen on this show. Do you have a middle initial A? Stephen A. Vaughn? No, it's not. Uh, What's your middle initial? (laughs) Uh, M. Stephen M. on Stephen A. Let me ask you, Stephen M., why does Stephen A. seem to have a thing with Damian Lillard? Um, I think he is trying to push him to New York ultimately because he's a Knicks fan. And mm. so I think uh, that's why. You know, he, he's one of those guys I talked about Charles Barkley before where he doesn't really watch games. I'm not sure Stephen A. Smith is staying up till 10 o'clock East Coast time to watch Damian Lillard tip off. So I think he wants to you know have him on the East Coast at least so he doesn't have to stay up as late and so he can watch him more. That is the 5 at 5. Five biggest stories going on in sports. Thank you, Anna. Yeah. Well done. Uh, we're off track. Off schedule, but we got it done nonetheless. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. One of the things I love about this show is how fluid it gets and can get. It may drive diehard sports fans who just don't understand what we're trying to do a little nutty. But uh, I assume that you know the scores of the game when you come to the show. I assume that you have a mobile device. Maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong when you come to the show. Uh, I do want to deal in the news of the day, and part of that is the 5 at 5 segment. Part of it is the great audio that we pull from Punch It Audio. But um, sometimes, you know, I just I, I feel like we've got some flow on the show, and I want to go with it. Uh, I appreciate everybody who called in with their great sports moments. And the soundtrack of your childhood or your sports life. Uh, and all the suggestions that we got. One of the things that's not going to be the part of the soundtrack is the University of Oregon's baseball weekend against Oral Roberts. Um, game one on Friday was fantastic. Oregon overcame an 8 nothing deficit and walked off the field a 9-8 winner. It was remarkable to see how amazing it was uh, to see the resilience, to see the never-say-die, the no-quit. I mean, Oregon just got it done in a way that was really inspiring and fun. The Ducks had it given back to them in Game 2 of the series against Oral Roberts. Here's how it sounded. One-strike pitch. Line the other way toward the line. And that literally landed on the line. Hit the line. This should stand, and Oral Roberts will have a walk-off win. Brutal way to lose. It's not just that they were down to the final two outs. One out and nobody on before the rally by Oral Roberts. It's that the game-winning hit, uh, a walk-off ground rule double by Justin Quinn, literally hit chalk. Uh, down the line and um, I still left that game though thinking Oregon was going to win game three I don't know I felt at home both teams out of pitching and uh, Oregon got walked off in game three as well all three games in the series were fantastic
came down to the bottom of the ninth inning, and uh, the home team won. Uh, 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 you know, essentially walked everybody off, and it was uh, it was a uh, it was a it was a bad outcome for the state of Oregon for the Oregon Ducks. But really fun to see Mark Wasikowski's team. He was on the show earlier today talking about that, and I really do think that like if you are a baseball fan of the state of Oregon, there's so much that we have in front of us when it comes to both Oregon, Oregon State, and uh, and University of Portland even playing some really good baseball. So fun stuff to see that. Uh, pivoting to the NFL, uh, Saquon Barkley. Um, he has learned this offseason, he says, that the NFL is a business. He's learned a little bit about the business of football. There is uh, a possibility that he will hold out for a bigger contract this offseason. He's going to miss minicamp. He says, uh, he says it's about respect. Here's Saquon. Just coming to reality, understanding that, you know, that is a business. You kind of get lost in that. You you get caught up in playing a game, getting caught up in having fun and uh, just going out there and doing something you've been doing since you're a little kid. And that's the beauty of it. But at the end of the day, there's a, a business side of it. And it, it forces you to grow up and mature. And, you know, you got to see it. You can't just see it one-sided. You got to see it both-sided. But um, at the end of the day, for me, this offseason has been, even though I'm not in there with my teammates, just focusing on going and grinding and, um, you know, preparing myself to be the best version of myself I can be. Giants used the franchise tag on him earlier this year. He has not signed the deal. Uh, and by not signing the deal, he cannot be at the facility this spring. Uh, the Giants have a mandatory minicamp tomorrow and Wednesday. Barkley says he can't be there and won't be there. Now, they have until July 17th to agree on a new deal. So this this is negotiating 101. Um, you know, he's open to talking, they're open to talking, but July 17th is, it's, while it's not next week, while it's not tomorrow, um, it's coming down the pipeline. And this whole contract situation with Barkley is interesting to me because I think there are very few running backs in the NFL that you can say are difference makers, and there are some teams who are getting away with not paying at the running back position. We've seen it, in, especially with the Kansas City Chiefs, getting to the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl. They didn't, they didn't have a bell cow running back. That's not the focal point of their offense. But Saquon Barkley had 1,300 rushing yards, 10 touchdowns, caught 57 passes, and has been the face of the franchise since he was drafted five years ago. Can they afford to not pay Barkley? And if he holds out, uh, I think it's a problem from, from a number of standpoints for the Giants because, look, the Giants went to the playoffs. They won a postseason game. And, you know, they haven't been in the postseason in his, but one time in his career. So they get there, and you would think that the emphasis on the Giants is, okay, now we made the playoffs, now let's build. Won a game, made the playoffs, let's build from there. But he's now talking about respect. And I think this is a problem because he is a highly respected player in that locker room. And if he holds out and the Giants don't pay him and there's a big, long, extended, bad feelings uh, scenario or soap opera that plays out here, I think it has the potential to affect more than Saquon Barkley. I think it has the potential to cast a negative light on the Giants' front office because it sort of suggests, hey, if they don't respect that guy, who do they respect? But if you're the, but if you're the Giants, though, John, you're looking at Saquon Barkley, you don't, you don't want to pay him that type of money for a running back. We just saw Dalvin Cook, 27 years old, ran for almost 1,200 yards a season ago. He just got released in the prime of his career. Josh Jacobs in Las Vegas, same thing. Like He's going through a contract negotiation, led the NFL in rushing last season. Isn't it just because running backs 
are less valued at this point, and now the teams don't want to give these long-term deals. None of them have really worked out for these running backs. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott just yeah. got released after his big deal. I mean, Christian McCaffrey might be the only guy, but like these running backs, I think, are getting but, yeah. devalued, aren't they? They are getting devalued. And But the, the difference with the Giants is, like, I look at Minnesota and I go, okay, Dalvin Cook, Minnesota, I kind of look at their front office and their ownership and I go, okay, maybe that's just the Vikings being the Vikings. The problem that the Giants have with Barkley is he's not just the focal point of their offense. He's the guy. He's the leader in that locker room. And if they're not going to pay him and value him, I kind of wonder how that reflects on everybody else in that locker room because I felt for a while like, this isn't like, because Ezekiel Elliott and the Cowboys, I never felt like it was Ezekiel Elliott's team, the Dallas Cowboys. I, I've looked at Dak Prescott and Elliott, and I've you see Jerry Jones is the face of the franchise, but the Giants are Saquon Barkley, are they not? Yeah, I mean, I think you can argue that because he was the number two overall pick in a, in a draft where, you know, they, maybe they should have traded back and tried to get a quarterback because number two seems high to draft a running back. But, yeah, I mean, you think of the Giants' offense, it's been so anemic the last few years after they got rid of Odell Beckham. It, it is basically Saquon Barkley, and that's it. So I get your point on what you're saying is, but, yeah. you know, from my point of view, John, I really just think, like, if you lock in a running back at that value, unfortunately in the game of football, like, that, they're going to get hurt at some point, and he's already been hurt in his career are you really willing to lock him down for a big contract when he's already had injury concerns throughout his career and he's a running back that you just you know used so much last season? I, I don't know, man. I, I'm kind of on the Giants' side on this one. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle it. And is he willing to sit out a full season? I don't think he is. I think at this point, July 17th is a long way away when you're negotiating and you're sitting here you know, uh, more than a month in front of that on June 12th, and you're going, okay, we got a week and or a month and five days to figure this out. I think now is the time for posturing. And if you're the Giants, maybe you posture back and you go, hey, you know what? In today's world, look look at the Super Bowl winner. You don't need a bell cow stud running back to win. But I think down deep, the problem is that the Giants front office has a locker room that is kind of. I think they're they're side eyeing this negotiation right now, going, okay. How are they going to treat Saquon Barkley? If they don't treat him well and they don't take care of him and they don't respect that guy, do they respect any of us? And, you know, Daniel Jones, nobody's talking about Daniel Jones. This is Saquon Barkley's team. Yeah, to that point, do you think Saquon has the leverage with the fact that he was the offense last season to get to the playoffs for the first time forever? Like, is yeah. he holding the leverage in his hands or are the Giants just trying to play hardball and get him on a cheaper contract because he's a running back? There, I think both. I think it's a negotiation. and I think And I think it ends up being – much about nothing in the end because I don't think he's willing to sit out a season and I don't think the Giants are willing to play the season without him. So they will find a happy medium. And it's funny because, uh, you know, Susie Orman, the uh, financial advisor who, you know, you can find all over the Internet, she has this saying where she talks about money. Money equals respect. You know, money equals respect. Like, you know, if a company's not willing to pay you, they don't respect you. If You know, and money equals respect. And I think the Giants, like Saquon's, like, on that front negotiating very wisely because the fan base is watching the New York Giants his teammates are watching the New York Giants everybody's you know in that little ecosystem watching this play out and Saquon's not saying you know hey pay me I need to be the highest paid running back in the NFL I need to be up there with some of the quarterback he's not saying that he's just saying this is about respect now he's coming off of you know, a deal that had had a twenty million dollar signing bonus. If I'm the Giants, I sort of point out, hey, we just paid you thirty one million over the last four years. There's a whole lot of respect buried in that. 
But I think this ultimately will be much about nothing because I just don't see him. We have seen running backs who try to sit out a year or try to you know push you know the envelope, and you're right. It, it sort of says something. At some point, a team will go, eh, we can do without you. We'll take that money. We'll allocate it somewhere else. And, you know, yeah, it will hurt, but it won't hurt ultimately. And, but, I, but I think with the Giants, it's a little different with Saquon because he's just he's the face of the thing. And it's the same type of problem I think the Blazers have with Lillard a little bit. He's the face of the franchise. He's not just a great player that they would potentially have to pivot. So the Blazers are in this position, like, if they're going to trade Lillard, they have to treat him with a certain amount of dignity and respect and also while they're doing what's best for them and i think they're trying to walk that line a little bit with him you know hey you know build around me and i'm not here to to grow with 20 year olds it's not very much different than saquon saying hey i want respect i want to be paid i think ultimately there's more going on here than just negotiation or strategy from the blazers standpoint it is about respect money equals respect in that world saquon's got that right Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. I don't think there is a more lightning rod program in America than Colorado football right now. Uh, Coach Deion Sanders doing an interview on the uh, Joel Klatt show where Klatt was kind of just managing his expectations, talking a little bit about, you know, what it is to win five or six more games in a given season. Well, I think, again, there there are people that they believe that this is just kind of like overnight. What do you mean by you win a national championship overnight? What, 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 what not think like that? Listen, I would love to think like that. Why not think like that? I also know in in my profession, Coach, I know that a plus four or five in the win column is a drastic improvement. Not for me. I don't think like that, man. I want it all. I don't want to sip. (laughs) Maybe I want it all. I want to get full. I don't want to sip. I don't want one spoon. Give me it all, man. I don't need no pot pie where I got to put it in the oven for 45 minutes and take it out and poke the holes and blow on it for another 15 minutes and wait till it cool off. I ain't got time for that process. I want it now, and I want it all. Deion Sanders says he wants it all. He wants it now. Is that realistic? Steven, I, your tune has changed when it comes to Coach Prime. I mean, I don't. Help me out. I wouldn't say uh, on his scale. It sounds like he thinks they're going to be winning 10 games. I don't think it's that that dramatic of a change but i agree with joel clatt like it's gonna be tough to get to four or five wins but i think they can do that i think a four you know a plus four win season uh over last season when they would won i think that is doable i don't and that should should that be the expectations i don't i i don't know if it should be up to five but like three and a half or four is the number like i think that's perfect and if they get to four or five i think it's a really successful season so I don't. I'm not with Dion all the way on that one, where he thinks you know they should be competing for big time games. But I think they'll be a lot more competitive, and they could get uh, more wins than what the Vegas number shows. Vegas numbers four, the over under. Stevens going over. He's saying five, and maybe flirting with bowl eligibility. I think the transfer portal helps Dion Sanders. The two, three, five years ago, when we didn't have a transfer portal. Jonathan Smith's a great example. He takes over Oregon State in 2018. He goes 2-10 in his first season. No portal available, 2-10. Cupboard was bare. They were not competitive in many games, but I thought Oregon State did a really nice job. They were 1-8 in conference play, nine conference games. They were 1-8. Colorado, incidentally, late in the year was the only game that Oregon State won that year, and it was an important win because it kind of gave 
Oregon State a little bit of hope, a little bit of, hey, momentum, a little bit of reward at the end of the season. So let's just say that Colorado, using the portal, got a little better than Oregon State did in Jonathan Smith's first year. But I'm not willing to say, like, did they get monumentally better? Did they get twice as good? Did, will they get to four? Will they get to five? I think that number's probably set about right. You're not going crazy. I mean, to be fair to you, you're not saying he's going to come out and win conference. But you're saying you won't be surprised if he wins five. Right. And, and I think the difference between Jonathan Smith and Coach Prime is Shadour Sanders. Right? Shadour Sanders was a four-star prospect coming out of high school. He went to Jackson State, put up really good numbers there. Like, I, I think Coach Prime has a really good quarterback. He has some really good things where when Oregon State and Jonathan Smith got there for his first year, I mean – what, what did they have? It wasn't Shadour Sanders. It wasn't. Covered was bare. Yeah, it wasn't. Co- I, think the, was bare. I, I think the the skill positions, especially. They had Jake Luton. I mean, they had Jake Luton, yeah, but. I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he was fine. But they opened the season with Ohio State, if I remember correctly, and Luton was pretty much gone after a 77 to 31 loss. Right. And. and didn't see him again until late in the year. And some of the defensive guys they've gotten in the transfer portal, you know, were all, you know, high power five guys, uh, you know, three, four star recruit. Like, I just think that the, the, the cupboard is a lot less bare than it was in Oregon State. So I think it's a little unfair to say that it, Oregon State and Colorado are in the same uh, the same breath when it comes to no. Coach Prime and Jonathan Smith. All right. So you're saying five. You're taking the over. I think I think it's a three to four. Maybe if they have if something breaks their way, that Nebraska game is really important, isn't it? Because when you look at it, you go, okay, starting the season one and one versus zero and two is a huge difference, and especially with that home opener, I think it's a big game for the Pac-12. That Nebraska, the Colorado game that happens in week two at Folsom Field because it sets the stage for week four. Really, if if Colorado can beat Nebraska at home in week two, it will, I think, at least put it in the minds of ESPN's executives, whoever is responsible for sending the uh, college football game day crew around the country. I think it at least plants the seed in their mind that, hey, that could be a big date at Autzen Stadium. Now, the Ducks have to go to Texas Tech and win. And I think uh, Colorado in week three would have to avoid tripping and face planning against Colorado State, which, by the way, is not a foregone conclusion. Colorado State will show up to play in that game. That is a big game for Colorado State. A lot of bad feelings in state. And I kind of wonder, do you think here, – here's another thing. We saw this at Oregon, Stephen. The players, the kind of players that were enamored with Oregon as Oregon built big facilities, as Oregon got the jerseys, let's be real, they were not the kind of players who understood an in-state rivalry. They were not the kind of players who understood, like, what it meant to be an Oregon, a man of Oregon and – you know, you know, a lot of what we saw at Oregon, Oregon got confu- or, uh, accused of, you know, Paris Hilton and college football, all that stuff. Do you think the transfer kids who go to Colorado are going to understand what playing Colorado State is all about? Or are they going to look ahead and go, oh, we got Oregon next week? That's a fair point. That you know, I think it is the look ahead because, you know, we talk about this in the NBA with the Blazers, just choose direction, how you're going to build your team. Colorado's doing that right now, and Coach Prime is choosing to go national. He wants to be a national brand. He wants to be a part of you know big-time college football games, and you don't do that when you're recruiting these local guys and building rivalries with Colorado State. So you are right that they could be overlooking a team like Colorado State when they see Oregon on the schedule that next week. And, and at that point, it's you know I, I think the, the talent that they have at the certain skill positions should be enough 
where they get on the field and they can beat a team like Colorado State. You talk about the Nebraska game being very important, and it is, I think, because as soon as Colorado starts losing games, and if they go 0-2, yeah. they're going to be out of sight, out of mind. And as long as they can beat a team like Nebraska and they can show up a somewhat against TCU, they'll still be in the front of people's minds in college football and say, you know what, is Dion really going to do this? Is he really going to put Colorado as a competitor in year one? So I do think those are super important games and I, you know, I, Matt rules the new coach in Nebraska. I don't necessarily trust him in year one to turn around that program. You know what his over under is though? What six and six and a half, depending on where you look. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know what, Matt rules first uh, win. To, how many wins he won at Baylor his first year was one. So you take, he's one of those guys that builds it to the or you know tears it down to the studs and then rebuilds yeah. it. Where Coach Prime is doing that, but he's doing it on the fly. So that'd be a really interesting game. I'm excited for that one. But I think yeah. you're right. They, they won't know the rivalries. Like they won't would, know it. They won't know it. Yeah, it was like the Oregon kids, you know, look, I, I get why Oregon was recruiting kids nationally, but I don't think that some of the Oregon kids in that era understood the rivalry with Oregon State, the way that Oregon State's recruits understood it. And a lot of the Oregon State kids were in-state kids at the time, and you could just tell that game meant more to the Oregon kids, and the UCLA or the USC game meant more to the, to, uh, the Ducks, you know, because a lot of those kids were playing – in their in the footprint that they grew up in but in also, Los Angeles, but also to that though, during that time, Oregon was you know dominated Oregon State yes. too. So like yeah. the, the talent was so much better than Oregon State. It didn't matter yeah. what they cared about. I'll tell you this though too. Look, um, in 1998-99, I covered Indiana basketball, and in Indiana that season had a pretty good team. AJ Guyton was on that team. Luke Recker was on that team. They were they were very decent. They went to the NCAA tournament. Bobby Knight's the coach. He swore going to the game against Indiana State in the early part of the season, that that was a harder game for them than Kentucky or Temple or anybody else that they were going to play because Indiana State's kids showed up going, you didn't recruit me, and they were pissed. And he was right for about 10, 12 minutes of that game as Indiana State would just come out and play lights out, you know, till the adrenaline wore off, and then talent took over. I'm really curious about two things with Colorado. One, if they don't have the offensive and defensive linemen and they do start the season 0-2, are you going to see some uh, you know, distractions happen? Are you going to see kids who arrive via the transfer portal squawking about, did they make a bad decision? Did they go to the wrong school? Or will they right the ship immediately in week three and, and hunker down against Colorado State? Uh, I think it's an interesting thing because there's a potential here they could start like 1-4 and four if they don't beat Nebraska because they you know I could see them losing to Oregon and USC and you're one and four to start the year and I and I do wonder about attention and focus when you start one and four and you do have transient you know a transient roster who has been assembled you know we've seen this it's like a club team Steve and you get a club team together goes one and four in a tournament how focused are they going to look they're not they're not but I I want to give coach prime the benefit of the doubt because that is a hell of a coach he's got in Sean Lewis I think he's the right guy to be out front. But, again, I'll come back to what I said when I started this segment. There isn't a program in the country that is getting talked about the way Colorado is getting talked about. I think it's good for Colorado win or lose. Uh, yeah, no, and I think that's the thing is we talk about Colorado overlooking a team like Colorado State. TCU, they just went to the national championship game. They're not going to be overlooking Colorado because of all the hype that they're getting this offseason. Like they're not going to go into that game and be like, oh, we can tear, you know, we can just take care of this team. No, they're going to look at them and say, we got to show up and play because everyone's going to be watching this game. Keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on that number. 
I think it's more likely that the number goes to four and a half than it goes to three and a half. Because I do think more people, as the season approaches, are going to hear and you know get behind what Colorado's doing. But Stevens right now is taking the over. Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Over or under on Colorado, four wins this season. All right, grab a podcast for the show wherever you get a podcast. Uh, tomorrow's show will be fantastic. Uh, I hope you tune into it. Uh, the Bald Face Truth, obviously not here for a long time, just a good time. I appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day.